Welcome to Headlines. This is Ari Wasserman sitting in for David Lichtenstein. Today we are talking about a very relevant and important topic, and we are calling it off my derech. We are not calling it off the derech. We're not talking about off the derech. We're talking about off my derech. What does that mean? So oftentimes parents have hopes, dreams, aspirations, expectations of their children, and sometimes Maybe oftentimes the children don't live up to those hopes and expectations. And that means that we have children. They're still observant. They're still on the derech, but they're off my derech. They're off the hoped, expected derech of the parents. And we're going to talk about not the whole gamut of issues, but we're going to specifically focus on religious observance when the parents had expectations as to the religious observance of the children and the children, either in a specific area or more generally, hashkafically, take a different approach. They are on the derech, but not on my derech. And we will talk about the major areas of tension between between parents and children. We'll talk about how a parent should handle it, and we'll also talk about how a child should handle it when that parent has expectations and the child is not living up to those expectations. We are going to divide up and talk about the differences be- between Bali Chuva and those who grow up more modern and the yeshivish crowd. And we will also talk about the halachas of Kibbut Avayim. Does that mean that a child needs to fulfill the desires of the parents? What happens if the child disagrees? For example, the parents don't want to the child to marry a certain type of girl or a specific girl and the child wants or a woman and the child wants to and it really impacts kashrus issues and what keep it aware and so, as they say in London couple so many issues we'll talk about we'll talk about the specifics and we'll talk about the generalities as well and kashrus is going to be a big issue that we'll talk about must children eat by parents when the children have stricter standards of kashrus does that dictate to eat by your parents can parents eat by children who have laxer standards. We have a very experienced and insightful group of guests on the show today. We will start out with Rabbi David Kaplan. He is a senior lecturer at Orsamech in the morning. And he will talk about the experiences of Baalei Tshuva. And then in the afternoon, he is the Mashkiach Ruchani at Yeshiva's Beis Yisrael. So he will be talking about the experiences of those on the right as well. So he will be laying the groundwork for us to talk about the major issues that happen between parents and children. Then we will speak with the acclaimed Rosh Yeshiva of Eishat Torah Rabbi Yitzchak Berkowitz. We will talk about various halachic aspects of Kibbut Avayim and the tensions that exist between parents and children and how those issues should be handled. We will then speak with Rabbi Moshe Elephant, who is the COO of the Orthodox Union. He's the Rabbi of Ashul. And we will talk specifically about the kashrus issues as it relates to parents and children who have different standards, and he will give us some very interesting insights into how those differences should be handled, and we will culminate the show with Rabbi Yitzhak Lobenstein. He is the head of an organization, Ten Tikva, that guides parents with their struggling teens, and he will talk about a deep dive into the Haredi issues and how to handle differences in religious expectations and practice, specifically in the Yeshiva Shah Velt. Just a quick voice 
report on Parsha. I have a choice of Parshas again because we have a difference between what's being read in Chutzlaretz and what's being read in Eretz Yisrael, but I'll choose Parshas Bahaloscha being read in Chutzlaretz in one specific area. Fascinating discussion between Moshe Rabbeinu and his father-in-law Yisro. And Moshe Rabbeinu is attempting to convince Yisro to stay with Kal Yisro. Why, going back, why go back to your home? You can be of such benefit to us. You can be the eyes for us. What does that mean? So Rashi explains as follows. Anything that we don't get, things that we don't understand that are difficult for us, you will be able to illuminate our knowledge, our understanding. You have such insights, Yisro. You'll be such of, of such assistance to Klal Yisrael. And the question is as follows. This is the question that's asked by the Gaon Rav Moshe Sternbach and Istan Vadas. This doesn't seem to make sense. We need to outsource to Yisro. When we need assistance, we have all the Zakenim and the Chachamim of Klal Yisrael to get Eitzah from. Why do we have to turn to Yisro? So he says as follows a very important and beautiful insight. He says, if you've grown up in Klal Yisrael, and the same would be if you grow up from, you have grown up with belief, with emuna that's innate, which is also a good thing, but you become acclimated to it. You just become dulled and used to it. And in contrast, when somebody is a Baal Tshuva, when somebody was Choser B'Tshuva and they find HaKadosh Baruch Hu based on their great Seichel, they've investigated, they've analyzed, they've searched, and they have found that is so strong and that is so powerful. And accordingly, we have Moshe Rabbeinu saying to Yisro, what does that mean that those who are Choser B'Kshuva and they're Davek, Ba'kodesh Baruch like Yisro, we have so much to learn from the Baalei Tshuva because of the strength that they have, the Amuna they have, and they have reached their Amuna through Seichel, which sometimes occasionally, or maybe even oftentimes, those who have grown up with it, indeed, do not have that same approach, because they haven't had to think about the issue. So it could be. It could be based on this Dvar Torah of Rav Moshe Sternbach, the Gun Rav Moshe Sternbach, that implicit in this message, well, maybe it's explicit in this message, is indeed we can learn from each other. People who grow up from Shomrei Torah Mitzvahs have a lot to learn from Balei Tshuva, and obviously the converse is the same. Balei Tshuva learn from those who have grown up with it. And we do see here that we have Yisro, who is being told, you can be our eyes. But we also see here that somebody who is growing up in the veld, somebody who is growing up from it could be occasionally that become weakened because they don't have that strength of understanding of Amuna that is necessary of a Baal Shuva. Baal Shuva is going to move to the right of the parents. That's by definition. The parents were not observant or semi-observant and a Baal Shuva is going to become strengthened because they've looked in and investigated and searched and found. But it could be, and most of the time this is not the case, but it could be that somebody grew up and didn't have that exposure and insights. It could be that their Amuna becomes and their observance becomes weaker. And indeed, I just want to say that when it comes to these classifications that I've been talking about, we call them Bali Tshuva, we call them modern Orthodox, we call it Yeshivish, uh, we're going to be using that for simplicity. I'm not a fan of these titles. I'm not a fan of classifications of Jews. There is a huge spectrum of people. Each person is different from the next, but nonetheless, we will use those classifications for ease of discussion today. It's otherwise, it's very difficult to discuss the topics that we are going to be delving into, but I also do want to say a very important point, and this applies not only to today's show, but it applies to many of the shows that we do, that different 
categories of people, different groups of people have very different experiences. And we will talk about generalizations on this show, but it doesn't mean that it applies to each of the categories across the board all the time. Different people have different experiences as well. So that is indeed very important to know. We'll talk about generalizations again, but it doesn't mean that every single person in these classification, these groups, will experience the same. So before we go to our riddle, I just want to quickly play an audio of an interesting conversation that I had with somebody along these lines. He started out uh, in a less observant family, and he's going to talk about the experience he had with getting less observant and more observant. And I think it's going to set the groundwork for understanding some of the issues that we will be speaking about today. So my family's modern, and I grew up in modern Orthodox circles, going to modern Orthodox schools and stuff. But then in high school, I kind of didn't feel so connected to Yiddishkeit, and I started to go off the derrick, as they say. I hid a lot of it from my parents because I knew it would cause them pain, and I didn't want them to like know how far off the derrick I was. But I was basically not Shomer Shabbos or Kashis or, or anything. At some point, I just decided to reconnect or try to reconnect, and I ended up becoming more religious and so for a short period of time uh from my parents perspective everything was good like they were happy that i was like from again going to school more and all that stuff but then the tension started again because i started to become too from like i was getting close to graduating university and i started talking about going to yeshiva but that was already too much like for me to go to yeshiva so so it ended up that there was a lot of opposition from my parents so i thought it was so funny that like basically for my whole journey from like not being religious to being religious. So there was just this very short little spot in time where they were happy that I wasn't too fry and not too from, but then but now that's that's fun that's gone. So so it sounds like if you're in accordance with their interest and their level of religiosity, then parents will be happy, at least your parents, but if you're to the left or to the right, that gets you in trouble. Yeah. And what I thought was also very interesting is I went to Baltu Yeshiva. So while I was there, the people that I related to more were the people who came from like reform families more than the people who either came from Orthodox families or even Gary. Like it, it was so funny to me that, that there were people in my program who were Gary and their non-Jewish parents were more supportive of them learning Torah than my like, I mean, my, my, my Orthodox parents. And it was just bizarre. Yeah, wow. That, that's a, uh... That, that is powerful. So what would you say were the main pressure points, tension issues between you and your parents? What Was it more conceptual that your move to the right and they viewed it more of a rejection of their lifestyle or were there specific issues, specific observance issues that caused, caused the tension? Yeah, I think it was that I was moving more to the right. So um, as an example, they don't know this, but I wear a hat on Shabbos. And the reason they don't know this is because they would get very uncomfortable if I told them. And I even spoke to a Rav to see, like, um, is it okay if I go back when I visit my family to bring my hat for Shabbos? And basically, like, after hearing the situation, he said it's better to leave it at home. So another huge tension point is that is how many hours a day I'm setting aside to learn. So, like, even though I'm, like, now working, they're uncomfortable with with, with, with how, how many hours I'm learning. They, they want me to cut it down. They want me to focus more on my career. So let me ask you a question. We've been discussing the challenges with family, with parents, when somebody becomes more observant. Do you think your experiences are typical of other people who have become more observant or atypical? Yeah, I would say that friction between the child and the parents when a child becomes religious is common. 
more so with Reform and Conservative families than modern Orthodox, but it is still prevalent with modern Orthodox people. And just speaking from my own experiences, I would like it's mixed. I have some friends that were, that did have support and some friends that didn't from modern Orthodox families. Just something else I wanted to mention is I could definitely say this about myself. I don't know if I could say it for everybody, but I've seen it with other people that when the parents aren't supportive, it really affects the relationship that the child has with the parents in a bad way. It becomes much harder for the child to relate to the parents and have conversations with them about their life decisions and goals. And they end up having to find sort of a parental figure somewhere else. So with me and with other people, our relationship with our rebellion is it's much more intense. And in turn, parents will start to feel left out and, and hurt by that. I think there's a lot to unpack from that conversation. And Amir Tashem, we will talk about a lot of the issues and so many more as we go through this topic today. Before we get to our guests, very quickly, we'll go through the riddle of the week. For the riddle of the week, I'm going to take from Parsha Shlach, so those in Eretz Yisrael don't feel left out, and those in Chutzlaretz, many will listen to it when it's already Parsha Shlach. A very simple question for the riddle of the week. We are now in Terek Yugimel, Bamiba, Parak Yugimel, Pasuk Hafgimel, and it says that Kalal Ad Nachal Eshkol, they got to Nachal Eshkol, and thereafterward, in the very next Pasuk, it says that they called that location Nachal Eshkol. So this doesn't seem to make sense. It was already called Nachal Eshkol when they got there, so why does it say in the next Pasuk that they called it Nachal Eshkol? What is going on here? We'd love to hear your answers to this riddle question. If you want to leave a message by phone or dial in by phone to listen, in America, our number is 732-806-8700. In England, it's 44, like that's the country code, 33011-70250. In Eretz Yisrael, it's 02-372-0304. And now, let's go to our guests. Joining us now is Rabbi David Kaplan. Rabbi Kaplan is a senior lecturer at Or Sameach, as well as the Mashkiach Ruchani at Yeshiva Space Yisrael. He is a successful author, a renowned speaker, and he has experience dealing with our issues from Bali Tshuva all the way to the Yeshiva world and everything in between. Rabbi Kaplan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. I don't know about everything in between, but uh, <laughs> nowadays... I guess, you know, I guess we'll, we'll explore what is in between that, so yeah, we'll figure right. it out together. <laughs> so, Rabbi Kaplan, why don't we start with you? your morning job is Or Sameach, I think, an afternoon is, is base. Right. I, uh, the morning, I'm gonna, I, I teach a Morris year at Orsamath, which is the number one vehicle for making uh, for people becoming interested in Yiddishkeit, making a commitment. And the afternoon, I'm on Ashgiach at Yeshiva's Basin Show, which is more for American uh, American boys who are coming here to Israel to learn for a couple of years, sometimes three years, sometimes staying on at the Kailal, and a completely different, uh, completely different uh, 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 clientele. Let's start with the morning job, and then we'll work to the afternoon. So, so talking about the issues, the typical issues that a Baal Shuba has with his parents 
when he starts becoming from. We're talking not about off the derech. I, I actually titled this off my derech, not off the derech, because we're talking about when a, a, a child veers from the derech of the parents and right. finds his own derech. But we're talking about religious friction. We're not talking about non-religious. We're talking about when there's friction between parents and children, children and parents, and typically with the Baal Tshuva, not typically, always with the Baal Tshuva, it's going to be that the Baal Tshuva is more observant than the parents. So what, what would you say the typical issues are that a Baal Tshuva has with his parents? Uh, it's a, it's it's such a such an, uh, a broad uh, uh, so many factors. If I had to nail it down to two factors, it's number one: the parents are completely clueless about the, what the child is doing. There's a kid they raised with Western values, pursuing a kid. There's a kid they raised with Western values and and uh, uh, with, with the uh, usual life path of. Uh, going to college, getting a degree, getting uh, making money, and uh, no real plan after that. Probably getting married, then divorced. That's generally the uh, the life path. The uh, it hasn't really been well thought out. But all of a sudden, right in the middle of the middle of the game, the child says, switches gears, and the next thing you know, he's doing something which they're absolutely clueless about. So, hey, there's the concern about where religion or religion in general, and sometimes parents have had a little bit of background and may possibly a bad experience with religion. And so there's a concern over there. And then there's also the concern about the future. What's he going to do? And they've, you know, they've been brainwashed with any media they've been exposed to that, you know, they're a bunch of uh, parasites and religious stone throwing religious fanatics. And the whole thing is just a cloud for the parents. So there's a very, very big, you know, you have to put yourself in the place of the parents. Like, what's going on here? On the other hand, Bali Chubas also carry a certain responsibility, and, and they, they, they have to remain a respectful, uh, be tactful. And what I found is that when Bali Chubas are socially well adjusted, they're able to bridge the gap with their parents. People think that when Balachuva, people come Balachuva, so only off-balance people become, they think they came a Balachuva and it became strange. People who become strange after their Balachuva, I mean, they were strange before they became Balachuva. Torah doesn't make you strange. But there are situations where the Balachuvas are at fault for any friction and tension with the parents because they are not respectful, tactful, and pleasant about their uh, adjusted their 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 new uh, uh, embracing of Yiddishkeit. So uh, a couple of points that that I'm hearing. Number one is expectations of the parents. They have expectations before, and then those expectations are not met because the child goes off their derech. Right. And num- number two is uh, we could probably phrase it as fear of the unknown. If they're parents that really don't have experience, they have no clue what's going on. They think the child went into some cult or something like that. Correct. 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 And and uh, that's why one of the things we advise. Uh, Bali Chuba's uh, it, it is to, uh, you know, I'll give you an example, uh, uh, the classic example of, and I've asked this to a class full of Bali guys who are in various stages of, of their, their new religious commitment. Let's say it's your father's birthday, what gift would you get him for a birthday? Now, nine out of ten will tell you, you know, some book on Judaism, you know, something that, that and, and you couldn't, you know, now, what would you feel, how would you feel if it was your birthday and your father who studies ancient Greek art we get you a big book of Greek art. You know, yeah, I'm not interested. It's my birthday. It's not your birthday. And so the Valchuba has to know, yeah, there's this urgency and this, obviously, well, we understand the uh, concern that they want to help their parents avoid, you know, eternal damnation and purgatory. On the other hand, that does nothing but alienate people. So I tell the Bali Chuba, don't focus on the being Adam Don't tell your father, listen, Dad, if you don't wash your hands three times, you can go blind if you touch your eyes. And, uh, and don't tell him, drop that cheeseburger, you could choke on it and die. 
you respect your parents, stand up for your father when he walks into the room, wash the dishes without being asked, uh, mow the lawn without being nagged to do so. And then it's very likely your parents are going to say something like, listen, I don't know what they're brainwashing with you in that cult, but you're going back because something has happened. We're good as that. So even if it isn't quite that extreme, but it certainly creates and breaks the barriers when they see you become a mensch. Now, give us an example of a an issue, a story that you had to deal with. Did you get a call from a parent saying, what are you doing to my kid? Or do you have kids approach you, Talmudim approach you, say, how do I deal with my parents? Give us an illustration of, of uh, what could happen. Good to example, I once had a father who came and he felt there were there was uh, the parents and there was a brother and a sister. The brother became from. And the father felt we can't go out to any restaurants anymore. He won't be with the family, can't go out to eat because he won't go out to eat with us. So I said to the father, uh, you know, he, by my calculation, he makes up 25% of your family. And so said, so maybe the family has to accommodate him. There are plenty of kosher restaurants and you can do the exact same thing and get very good food. But for the parents, the father said to me, you know, he won't even hug his sister anymore. The Rambam says, boy's not supposed to hug his sister. I said, he won't even hug his sister anymore. I said, the father does the sister mind or you mind? You know, is she upset or are you upset? She's happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's like, you know, she doesn't even care in most cases. And so there's always this, sometimes that it's a concern, sometimes it's an exaggerated concern on the part of the parents. On the other hand, the kids have to deal with it with tremendous sensitivity, understand where your parents are coming from. There was another case of a girl who knew absolutely, the girl was raised in California, who knew absolutely nothing about Yiddishkeit, nothing. And uh, eventually she became a balas chuba. And at her wedding, her parents came in for the wedding, and it was a Friday night, uh, Sheva Brachas. And at the Friday night Sheva Brachas, there were a lot of from people there, a lot of her friends, and they started singing Zmiros. And all of a sudden her father is sitting in the other end of the room, and he starts, he's an older man, and all of a sudden he starts singing along the Zmiros with everybody else. And she's sitting there in the place, they had a total shock. Hey, how do you know these mirrors? He goes, what do you mean? You know, when I was raised, I was in a little boy in Cheder for a little while. We sang these songs. And, I, and she was so livid that she refused to talk to her father. She said, you deprived me. You cheated me out of all of this. You told, you didn't teach any of this to me. Now, it was communicated to her that she's not allowed to do that. Uh, you, there are no uh, uh, leniencies when it comes to Cuba of aim. You know, you can't cut your parents off simply because you don't want to talk to them. One of the other challenges, if I have, if I have a minute, unless you want... There, there, there's another Bali Chubas often have where they're hesitant, and this is a very big question, and it's a case by case determination where the parents would like them to come home for 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 holidays for Yom Tobim or for Shabbos about Chuba fields, but I don't have an environment there, and I may get pulled down. On the one hand, you have a mitzvah of Kibbutz On the other hand, there is a very big real concern that you're not going to be able to uh, uh, that you may actually uh, end up getting kidnapped back into that world, and that has to be determined on a case by case basis. Because there's sometimes where boys say, "Well, listen, you're strong enough," and it's going to be a challenge. But that's part of the Torah's challenging stuff. There's other cases where simply you cannot. Uh, I go, Rabbi Gottlieb once told me that he had a guy who became from, and he sent a letter to his parents, wanted him to come home for Rosh Hashanah, and uh, he sent his parents a letter detailing 10 reasons why it's forbidden for him to come home. His father was reformed, happened to know Rabbi Gottlieb from the old days, and his father was well-educated, and he sent the letter to Rabbi Gottlieb. Rabbi Gottlieb told me that nine out of the 10 reasons were incorrect. And the 10th one was probably incorrect. So we understand that they'd rather err on the side of caution. On the other hand, better yet is not to err at all. And if I cannot tell you one more story, this is an incident that actually happened. It wasn't my idea. I used an idea from Rabbi Kiva Taz. A guy showed me a letter that he wrote to his parents, castigating them in the harshest terms 
for depriving him of any sort of Torah education, any Jewish education. He showed me the letter and I said, okay, now we're going to tear up that letter and you're going to write another letter. And this letter is going to say, mom and dad, I want to thank you very much for instilling truth in me as a value. And because you instilled truth in me as a value, I simply partook it to the next level. There are no parents in the world, you know, no matter no matter how big of a rat a person thinks he is, everybody for some reason thinks they're honest. There isn't a parent in the world if you say, "Did you are are you honest?" Oh, we're straight, we're honest people. Nobody if will say if you say to your parents you instilled truth in me as a value. No parents will say, "No, we did not." <laughs> everybody prides themselves on instilling truth as a value, and by doing that, a you create a warmer relationship with your parents and B, you're justifying what you're doing now and going on to the next stage. Right, so Rabbi Kyle, let me, let me make sure I'm going to recap. It sounds to me that when somebody becomes a Balchuva, at least if the parents don't have a background, they are now living in different worlds. It's not as if we have specific issues. We have numerous issues, hashkafic issues, halachic issues, Trafe restaurants you won't go into, you won't hug your sister, you won't uh, anger at the parents coming home for Chagim. And, and what you seem to be saying is that the onus is on the Talmud to make sure that he breaches that gap because he also, he's the one that made the change. Correct, correct. On the other hand, we also emphasize that all these differences are not really, they don't have to be there. You could tell your parents, I still plan on becoming a professional. I'm going to be a religious professional. You could become, there are plenty of from doctors, lawyers, accountants, engineers, every sort of professional, number one. Number two, I'm still interested in sports. And that's what we used to speak about. I'm still interested in music. I'm still interested in going out eating with the family. It doesn't have, if you're, if you're careful about it, you can easily, easily get through those barriers. They don't have to be those barriers just because you're wearing a yarmulke. Doesn't mean that there has to be a barrier. Right. Okay. If we could move forward, yeah. instead of going straight to basis all in the afternoon, if we could stop at lunch and discuss the uh, modern Orthodox. Modern Orthodox, we'll talk about a, a boy who goes off to a yeshiva a year, two years, maybe three years, and typically becomes more observant than the parents. Obviously, the par, the gap is not going to be as extreme as with the Baal Tshuva, but there seems to be some sort of gap that can uh, be generated by going off to yeshiva. What are the typical issues and consequences of that maturation religiously? I have found that in that when that happens, there is often even more anger than with the Balichuvas. By the Balichuvas, they're they're baffled and they're scared. But the modern Orthodox are just angry because what you're really saying is I'm not religious enough, and they know in their heart of hearts that they have compromised, and there is are compromises they're living with. And I myself came from a modern Orthodox background, as did my brothers and my parents, who were. Uh, 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 staunch raised in Chicago in the 40s and 50s in the Hapola Mizrahi uh, movement. And they they were, uh, you know, I was in B'nai Akiva. My brother moved to the right and I moved to the right. And my parents were, they saw that we, their, their value in life was you do what you feel you have to do as long as you're consistent with it. And they respected us for it. And uh, uh, they themselves eventually became what we call Haredi because they understood that we're playing, we're, we're playing for keeps over here. Now they caught a lot of flack from their friends. They had one friend who once yelled at my father. My older brother became very from and his head sharing. He started being more mach around certain head sharing. And my parents were fine with it. My father respected it. And there are certain head sharing. My son didn't eat. This man yelled at my father that your son is over on Kibbutzavim. All of a sudden he was very concerned about this. You understand? Your son is over on Kibbutzavim because he won't eat in your house. Now this man had one son who was not religious, a daughter married a goy, and so on and so forth. But my parents were, were, 
were, were very, they were willing to go with it. Modern Orthodox people are very, if they, in their heart of hearts, they feel you're saying that I'm not religious enough. There's a lot of resentment and anger there. So there's a, there's a feeling of rejection. There's a feeling that you reject that you're that the Bali Chubas is often I would call rejection. By the modern Orthodox, it's you are telling me that I am not religious enough for you. By the Bali Chubas, you're telling me my way of life isn't good enough for you. Here it's my religious level is not enough for you. Why are you being more religious than I am? And and sometimes there's the accusation of you're projecting, and this is in both worlds, of a holier-than-thou attitude. But often it's, I'm not projecting anything. I just put on a black caramel cut, I'm wearing a jacket and a hat, and you have a certain conscience that's bothering you, so you think that I'm projecting that. But you see me as holier than you. That's And there is could often be a lot of anger. And so how do we bridge that gap if we're talking with the Talmudim who come off to yeshiva and try to coach them as to de- diminish the issues and friction when they go home? How, how do we get over that one? There has to be communication, and not all. And, you know, sometimes uh, uh, not every uh, not every situation has a pleasant outcome and a pleasant solution. And if somebody on one side, which either side, if somebody is unreasonable, uh, there's very little you can do with unreasonable people. Uh, if your parents are reasonable, and you can explain to them. And look, I often ask the Talmudim when they come to me with these sort of issues, and I'll ask them: Is are your parents people you could speak to or not? Is your father somebody who could you could speak to? Is your father somebody who dominates every conversation and gets upset when he feels senses that you're right, and he he tells you he doesn't want to hear another word about it? Then there's really nothing you can do but to be, try to be as respectful as possible and do what you have to do, and hope that it doesn't rub them the wrong way too much. Just do the best you can, and uh, whatever happens after that, that's out of that's your control. Right. That's okay, right. well, let's move on to the afternoon. Okay. Bait. And now we're talking more in the yeshiva realm. We're talking about uh, parents who are have a lot of conviction, shomri, Torah, mitzvah, legamri, to the end. And they send off the, the, the children to yeshiva. Um, thereafter, I, do we have issues with coming to yeshiva? Or, or I assume that children don't get less observant when they come off to the yeshivas. Um, so is there friction in the yeshiva? And then we'll bifurcate it. How about after yeshiva? Maybe there's a, a change thereafter. Okay, so that's a, there, there, there's generally one issue that constantly comes up. So let me, let me just tell you, I've coined the phrase, uh, I've coined the phrase, you know, people talk about uh, the modern, there's modern orthodoxy and there's yeshivish karedi. Now I've coined the phrase, which I call it modern frumadox which is people who are, you know, they probably learned in yeshivas themselves, went into the business world, you know, maybe they still have a TV in the house and maybe they'll go to movies. They're not quite yeshivish, but they certainly identify more with the Haredi world. So I call that modern frumadox. Now, we get boys who come to the yeshiva and they get into learning. They've come out of the American yeshiva. Some have been more serious, some less serious. They get a taste of learning. The boys become very serious. The constant issue that resurfaces is that the boy sometimes gets the bug and he really wants to go the kolel route. And he wants to learn. And he wants to get then after three or four or five years, find a shit up or go off to Mir. Many of our boys go off to Mir Yeshiva or to Rav Kaplan and other yeshivas in the in the front row of the yeshiva world. And they want to get the shit up. And then you go to Lakewood or whatever it is and they go to kolel. And parents will often, by the third year, will start putting down their foot and say, you are not going to do that. You are going to go to college. And uh, uh, if you want, after you go to college, you get a degree, then you will be able to go back to yeshiva. Now, we always encourage the boys to maintain peace and shalom with the parents. But there are halachic issues here about whether or not you have an obligation to, to obey your parents here. And it becomes very, very tricky because we certainly don't want to encourage anybody to fight with their parents. On the other hand, uh, we encourage parents and people to do the right thing. So 
it, it does get very, it can get very, I, listen, I sometimes have situations where I'd like to call parents of the boys to let them know how well they're learning in yeshiva. And sometimes I'm hesitant to do so because I've had a call where I've called parents and said, I know, you know, your son is really picking up. He's learning well. He got really serious. And parents said, well, that's great, but he's coming home after a second year. So you don't know who's on the other end of the phone. You don't know who's on the other end of the line. So, it's, good, it's good they didn't say, well, that's terrible. He's coming home right now. Yeah, we, the, believe me, we've had, we've had it out with uh, sometimes it, it could get very, very unpleasant. And uh, it, it's a very, very tricky thing because these are people who are theoretically in the same camp as us. But there's this hashkafic difference on how you view the uh, how you view cold life. I, I'll tell you a personal story. My brother, when he left home, he was 16 and a half when he went to Israel. He went to Nativot. He was headed for Karen Biavda, which is one of the, uh, you know, the, the the more uh, modern yeshivas. And at the last minute, somebody somebody convinced him, he was a very bright boy, a very, very special boy, to go to Nitivot, which was a Israeli yeshiva where in the south of the country, which was known for taking modern Orthodox boys and what they call in Hebrew, the Srofotam, to turn them black, uh, Haredi. And my parents were in this modern Orthodox uh, peer group, and he went off for the first year, and then he wanted a second year, which in the, nine, the late 60s, that wasn't even done yet. Uh, or sorry, early 70s. Nobody went back even for a second year. Nowadays, that's, uh, that's de rigueur. But in those days, and nobody did it. So he went back for a second year. Okay, then he started talking about a third year. And at that point, my parents realized that this is not only about a third year. This is a life choice now. And my father, uh, uh, my father said, he looked, he, my father thought to himself, look, when he was five years old, he asked me if he could eat a certain food. And I said, no, because it's not kosher. And when he was 10 years old, he asked if he could turn a light on on Shabbos. He said, no, because we keep Shabbos. And now he says he wants to continue with this. What am I supposed to, how can I look at myself in the mirror and not see a hypocrite if I say to him, well, up to this point, but no more. And so my parents went along with it and they let him go and tre- caught tremendous gap from people. Kind of tremendous amount of criticism. And he went off and he went to Yeshiva and he became a, he learned in Kolo and he hasn't never spent the day in university. And as a result, I who was bouncing around and I was my generation's version of a of a kid at risk. But at the end, my decision to go off to Yeshiva had a lot to do with seeing my older brother and seeing how happy and content he was after I wasn't. And then my younger brother followed as well. So so it, this becomes a very, very strong issue with many parents, uh, the, the idea of of you are not going to Kolo, you will get your degree. And we refuse. Now, then it becomes a question of how strong the boy is and if he's willing to go off on his own. And we're right. there, so just cut off the burden, just, just cut off the funding. Now, it seems that we have four divisions. And I, I I don't like these names. I'm just using it for simplicity. Right. Obviously, we have a whole spectrum. So right. uh, we're just using the bucket so we can have the conversation. So so we talked about Bali Chuva and we talked about modern Orthodox. And now you're putting one in between modern Orthodox and Yeshivish. And you, it's called, I'm not sure I got it. Modern from from modern chromodox, I call it modern chromodox. So, so if we move now to the right of that, what are the friction issues that parents may have with children in the Haredi Yeshivish world? It's yes. the opposite direction. It's always the kid who does not want to be uh, uh, Yeshivish or as Yeshivish or what you said earlier about kids going off the derek. That's really interesting. nobody has nobody has a problem with their kids becoming more from unless they get nutty about it. Nobody has nobody has a problem unless the kid goes off balance. But no, nobody really has a problem. The problem is where the kids aren't don't want to be as religious as the parents. In some cases, extremely not as religious. And in other cases, they're just, you know, I want to be working. I don't want to go to Kolo. I don't want to follow that path at all. And parents have to uh, have to be very, very uh, uh, very smart in how they deal with these issues. Often it's because there's too much pressure on the kid. The father often doesn't uh, 
uh, the father's more concerned about what it looks like to outsiders than what the actual issue is. Uh, and uh, it could get they, they could, but it's always in that direction. I very, I don't remember any cases of people who themselves are really Ovde Hashem who are upset that their kids are becoming Ovde Hashem. I haven't, that I haven't seen. Uh, so, so to generalize, but this seems where it's coming out is uh, on the first three groups or on the left side, middle, even to the little bit of the right of the spectrum, the friction is because of a child moving more to the right. And when we're already on the right, the friction is because the child is moving to the left. Yes. A little bit to the left or a lot to the left. Uh, Rabbi Wasserman, I have to say that you have an incredible gift of being able to summarize things very quickly that you've just sort of put it together. I'm really impressed. Uh, you know, I've always been impressed, but this is a, you're, that's a, that's a perfect a perfect summation of what's going on. I'm glad I got it. Thank you. If I, yeah, if I got yeah. it wrong, then you'd say yeah. somebody who just doesn't understand anything. But, <laughs> but uh, so, so one last question. Um, if we're on, on the right side here and we have a child, we're not going to talk about off the derech. That's not, it's not our topic today. We're talking about off my derech. If a parent sees the child is floating, doesn't have structure, making it to minion sometimes, sometimes not, late to Sadarim, sometimes not going. What, what's an, a good piece of advice for the parent, how to handle that situation? I think that every Godel that I've seen who has met, talk, spoken about this issue has always said, just maintain warmth in the home. Maintain warmth. You can't, there's no way to push it. Probably the most common question I get from parents is my 11-year-old doesn't like going to shul or my 15-year-old doesn't like davening. Davening is probably the most common question that I've gotten. My response is always, well, how do you like it? Do you like shul? You know, and, and the rule is generally the kids are going to do what their parents do. Parents have to learn in these situations. You can't push because pushing doesn't help at all. And you just have to make sure that the kid feels that he's coming home to a warm bird's nest. And as long as that Kesher in the home is there, I'll tell you a, a story that I just heard recently from uh uh, I think uh, somebody told Rabbi Shimon Russell mentioned this story that he had gone through of Shtemans itself. Uh, I, apparently, it's a well-known story. I had just heard it. That a boy who was off the derech uh, uh, was coming back. He was coming back. He was 16 years old, but he had a girlfriend. And they went through of Shtemen to ask, the parents asked, should we Should we do something about this? Should we, what, what, what should we do about it if we should do anything? So Rav Shtemen's response was, if when the child looks in your eyes, he sees the same level of love that he sees when he looks in her eyes, then you can do something about it, otherwise not. And uh, parents have to know that's the only thing that they could really do. Try to create an environment, create an atmosphere. Your kid knows what you want. Your child knows what you want. I tell the parents all the time, parents say to the kids, we don't want you to smoke. And again, do you think there's a kid in the world who's 15 years old who smokes cigarettes who thinks his parents don't don't object to that? Is there a kid? What good does it do to say don't smoke? Don't smoke? He's going to smoke regardless. Out of your when he, when you don't see him, he's going to smoke. He knows what you want. Religiously, they know what you want as well. They know what you want. They know what you, what, what you what your goals are. But you can't make that conditional. It can't be that if you do what we want religiously, then you're going to feel the warmth in the home. And otherwise, otherwise you're in the fridge. Can't be. You can't be. He's your child. Obviously, there, there, you know, there, there, there are guidelines. We don't have time to go into that. You know, guidelines for how much you can tolerate, how much you can't, and so on and so forth. But that's what the child has to feel.
Very good. Well, Rabbi Kaplan, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure speaking with you. I definitely look forward to next time. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. I'm really impressed by your uh, by your ability. I wish I could do that. <laughs> Maybe next time I'll interview you. <laughs> I look forward to that as well. Okay, be well. Uh, bye-bye. Joining us now is Rabbi Yitzhak Berkovitz. Rabbi Berkovitz is the Rosh Yeshiva of Aisha Torah and is also the founder and Rosh Kolel of the Jerusalem Kolel. He has authored numerous books, is a renowned POSEC, and he has a lot of experience on our topic today. Rabbi Berkowitz, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Pleasure. Rabbi Berkowitz, we, we are not talking off the derach today. That's the commonly spoken about topic. But I think our topic is actually much more common. In fact, I, that's not to say off the derach is not common, but we're talking about when children are a little bit di- different religiously than parents. It could be a lot differently, uh, di- religious differently, depending on if it's, we're talking Bali Chuva. But we're talking about the frictions that exist between parents and children. It could be unspoken frictions or the, you know, the difficult issues that, that uh, are dealt with or n- often not dealt with. And, and I wanted to divide up our, our discussion between when a child is more observant than the parents, which could happen very easily, like in Aisha Torah, when you have a, a student that comes from a secular background and uh, becomes a bal tshuva, or it could become, it could be as well somebody that comes from a mo- more modern background and comes to yeshiva and gets inspired, as Aisha does so well with so many of its Talmudim. And then thereafter, we'll, we'll talk about when the children are less serious, less committed than the parents. So on a high level, and, and this does happen when we're talking about Bali Chuva, uh, a student in a secular university becomes inspired, be it from one of the uh, one of the organizations on campus. We don't have to mention any because we'll leave out some. There are a lot of great organizations and they get inspired and they want to head off to Yeshiva and they do. And that causes friction sometimes, maybe oftentimes, as, as you'll tell us. And the, the fundamental question to start with, is there is there an obligation to honor parents who are anti Religion. Thank you. Technically, no. Technically, no. Uh, technically, there is no obligation. In terms of honoring parents, there are two parts to it. There's Kibbut Av and there's Mora Av. With regard to Kibbut Av, definitely not. With regard to Mora Av, doing something that is considered that is considered degrading him in some way, um, that there's a Shaila about. But in practice, it doesn't make a difference. Today, it's so difficult to view anybody as amazed in anything. One way or another, we consider people at least a Suffolk, Tinnik, Shanishpa. They don't know any better. To call people Mazidin is, is uh, going a little too far. To go and just automatically give, give children a tour from honoring parents uh, because they don't know, because they're, even if they, they are stated Avikorsim, uh, I, uh, I would not be quick at doing that. Oh, that right. would not be quick at doing that. By the way, practically, you mentioned the case of Bali Chuva. Bali Chuva are always eager to be Makar of their parents. You know, they're eager and they're probably the last people to be Makar of their parents because it, it's, I mean, the dynamic is such your kids are judging you and want to try. They're trying to, uh, you know, they're crusading. They're trying to, <laughs> they're, they're trying to missionize you. It doesn't work so well. Strategically, the best thing a child can do to be Makar of parents is to be a great kid to honor parents in a way that their parents never experienced it before. Uh, that's the biggest Kiddush Hashem, the biggest inspiration. Yeah, it, it is by far the biggest inspiration. Even if they fight it, you know, if they fight it, they ask, you know, often they ask me, Can you, you're supposed to stand up for a parent. Uh, my parent will find it weird if I stand up for him. Maybe the first time. After a while, they're going to be so flattered. 
Right, right. You know, there's an amazing Kitzur Shulchan Aruch talking about Kibbut Avayim, and he says that whoever really wants to be Mekayim Kibbut Avayim in the best way, Yasuk Betorov Amaisim Tovim, he should be a good person. He should learn. He should be Maisim Tovim, which includes Kibbut Avayim, and and that's the greatest Kibbut Avayim that one can do. We'll be talking about that. We'll be talking about that. I I would like to what, what he's saying. Um, is not just a matter of Kiddush Hashem. What he's saying is something much deeper, and I'll get to it soon. Okay, so so so, so let, let me move on. On a conceptual level, we're going to show Kibbutz Avem, even if the parent is anti, doesn't want the kid to go to yeshiva, whatever the conflict may be, but assuming that we are going to be Mekayim Kibbutz Avem, there's a Chiyuv Kibbutz Avem, does that mean that the child has to adhere to all requests, demands, desires of the parent, or does that not extend that far? So to begin with, we don't find, we don't, we don't really find in the Gemara Beferish that listening to a parent is kibbut aveim. Even though parents always tell their kids, means you've got to listen to me. There are many Bishonim and Yavamis that learn that there is no such thing. What it says is machilo, mashkeyu, to take care of the parent's physical needs, possibly their emotional needs. But in terms of just taking orders, not. There are those who claim that it's included in Mora. Because the Gemara says that contradicting a parent is is a, is a violation of mora of of ishimo vavitiro, um, and doing not fulfilling their requests is something of saying no. You know, you're so sedvarev, you're 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 going against them. In terms of uh, children and parents disagreeing, and when you listen to them and when not, so I, I have to go into this a, a, a little bit, just a little bit of depth, because there, there's some very important concepts here. The Rishonim talk about not listening to parents when it comes to shaduchim. It's, I mean, it's a Ramah, it's a, there, there, there's a Chuvis Marik, really, that, 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 uh, that it all comes from. Um, not listening to a parent when it comes to whom to marry, where to learn, what yeshiva to go to. And one of the reasons that's brought down there is the halacha of Kibbanava aim is true, you have to exert yourself, you have to give your parents time, but you don't have to give them money. That's called Michel Bain. And the Gemara's maskana is that Kibbanava aim is Michel Av. The father has to finance it. Kibirave aim is not a financial obligation. It's one of tircha. It's one of giving them the time and exerting yourself, but not money. If your parents are, are, are in need and you have the means, then, you know, the first priority in Sadaka would be parents because of Kibirave. But the mitzvah of Kibirave aim does not require money. So then they say the same thing applies to whom to marry and where to learn. There you're talking about something that's essential to the person, and that would be considered Michelle Bain, and you don't do that. So I'd like to explain this this uh, this whole concept. It's Michelle Av, it's not Michelle Ben. Exertion, yes, money not, and here they're telling us whom to marry, and and so how, how does this work? So let me be, let me begin. The Gemara asks, Adhechan Kibarav, how far does Kibarav is Machayev? And it gives us the story of Dama Ben Asina where he had a, a, an offer of a fortune of money. Uh, they wanted to buy a stone. One of, one of the stones of the Choshen was missing, and, and uh, uh, he had it, and they were going to pay a lot of money for it. His father was sleeping with the key under his head. He wouldn't wake his father up for it. And, and as a schar, he got a paraduma the next year, and he made lots of money. So the problem is, the Rishonim already are trying to work out whose money was this. If it's Michel Bain, what, so you have to give up money? Or what, what exactly is going on? Perhaps waking him up is worse. Uh, I once at Rav Yashiv once said to us, you see from this Gemara that sleep is more dear to, to people than money. That he would rather his son not awaken him than, than make, than make lots, of, lots of money. To which I commented, Rav Yashiv was never in America. 
<laughs> That's correct. <laughs> they don't sleep. <laughs> so what, what's going on here? What, what, what is pshat? So I'd like to explain something. The Chinuch says the mitzvah of Kibbut Ava Aim is Hakoras Hatov. It's appreciation. Now, what is the Hakoras Hatov for? First and foremost, and sometimes exclusively, the fact that we're not for our parents, we wouldn't be here. You agree with the way they brought you up, you don't agree with the way that you brought you up. You agree with the way they treat you today, you don't agree. That's all irrelevant. Because you're here. You're here. If not for them, you wouldn't be able to disagree with them. You wouldn't be here to think otherwise. You owe your parents your life. We, let's face it, without our parents, we just wouldn't exist. We wouldn't be here. Now, now, now comes the, the real question. How do you show Hakaris Hatov? So I remember as kids, you know, we were always told you get a gift, make sure to use the gift when the person who gave it to you is around so they'll see how much you're using it, how much you're enjoying it, how much you appreciate it. Right? That, that's the best thing you can possibly do. Well, I don't know. You know, you, you get, you, you get a, a, someone, someone sends a vase, a tablecloth. You make sure it's on the table when they come. And that's Hakar Now, try a different Hakar You know, you sent me this beautiful tablecloth just to show you how much I appreciate it. I'm going to give it right back to you. It's ridiculous. That's not Hakar Satov. It's ridiculous. Hakar is to show real use of it. Listen, our parents gave us our lives. They gave us our lives. I am alive because of my parents, my personality, me, my Shorish Hanashama. I am here because of my parents. The best way to be mechabedem, like the Kitzvah Shulchan Aruch says, to become the best me. I am using what they gave me to the best of my ability. I'm not wasting it away. I'm showing them real appreciation for what they gave me. For me to compromise on that in the name of Kibbut Av is ridiculous. It's defeating the purpose. The idea of Michel Ben, the, the way the postkim are looking at it, is that you are not required to give up of yourself. Like to go and say, no, you know, you don't have to spend anything on your parents, no. But when it's a question of your whole financial state, which has, has a lot to do with your life altogether, no. Certainly where you're going to learn and certainly whom you're going to marry. This yeah, so is that, so much you. That's, that's, the, that's the Mahari. He says, if, if you don't have to spend money, call the Chomer, I don't have to listen to them, who to marry. The, the idea behind this is because this is me. This is my life. If I'm compromising on my life in the name of Kibbut Ava'ein, then I'm not showing Akar Satov. Now, back to Dhamma Benesina. Back to Dhamma Benesina. It's a funny one. People ask, you know, so uh, the Rishon already are bothered, but I, 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 I have shot Lamaisa, the Kesav Mishnah sort of says such and such a Mahalach. Dhamma Benesina wasn't Jewish. He doesn't have Hilchas Kibbut Ava'ein. The non-Jewish Kibbut Ava'ein is almost a superstition. You don't wake up a parent. You don't wake up a parent. In halacha, if you know that your father wants you to wake him up, you're mechoyev too. There is more superstitious. I always tell this story. I, I, I've got a friend. I've got a friend who, uh, after, after, it was after his bar mitzvah, he, he, he went off to yeshiva. Uh, his parents were traditional and he decided to show off to his father, you know, what he's learning about Kibbut Ava'im. So he told him the story of Dhamma Ben Asina. So he said, his father listens to it and says, listen here. If this happens in our house and you don't wake me up, I'm going to break every bone in your body. Lahalacha, <laughs> of course he'd wake him up. He wants you to wake him up. So what's the, what's the moral of the story? The Gemara asked, How much do you have to feel obliged to a parent? How much do you have to feel you owe your parent? The answer is, I owe them everything. 
Lamaisa, learn the sugya, and you'll find out when, when you wake them up and not. But that's not because we don't have endless hakaras atov to them. It's because the hakaras atov includes making the best of my life. So, you know, if, if you have this, this question of areas of, of conflict, unfortunately, you know, Dhamma ben Nassina's father, if he, when he'd awaken him, you know, that first second when he wakes him up would think that it's a terrible chutzpah. Because he was sleeping. What do you wake me up? Yeah, my son wakes me up. But eventually when he'd realize what it was for, it, it would do a lot for him. There are some parents that, what can we say, they're in some kind of a slumber. You know, they're, they don't appreciate the fact that their children are becoming the greatest. That doesn't mean that you don't wake them up. It doesn't mean that you remain, when they get up there, for Neitzach Nitzach and for Olam Hava, you're their ticket to Olam Hava. <laughs> Do what you can, become the best Jew you can, because not in spite of your parents, but as appreciation, as real kibbutz So that's Perfect. the rule. So, that's so rule. Uh, you know, b- based on that, obviously, if, if you have a student, uh, a Talmud, who wants to stay in yeshiva and the parent doesn't want, the Talmud doesn't have to listen to the parent and stays in yeshiva. Okay, but so, one thing, though, you know, you, you, it depends on the age. Is the child really holding in a place that he doesn't need the emotional support of the parent? You cannot go tell a 16-year-old who decided that he wants to switch to a religious school and become from at 16 or 15 against the will of his parents living in his non-from home. You can't just automatically tell him, you know, go do that. It's the best thing for your parents. You have no idea what that's going to look like in his life. Can it last? Is it really feasible? You really have to weigh, you really have to weigh it out. If you're talking about someone who's, who's already older and independent, that's totally different. So the practicalities definitely play a role here. Right. So let, let's look at the flip side. The parent wants the child to get a degree or the child wants to get a degree and the parent wants him to stay in the yeshiva. How, how would we comment on, on, on those? So, you know, you're talking about a parent, a child that wants to get a degree against the will of his parent. If the child knows himself and understands, he understands that considering who he is, staying in yeshiva is going to just turn him into a bottling because he's really not the kind of kid that sits through a seder and learns. He knows that. The parents want him to stay in yeshiva either because it's wishful thinking or sometimes it's just because, uh, you know, in their neighborhood, you have to have a kid in yeshiva. <laughs> uh, in such a case, I would say don't listen to them. Uh, vice versa, he wants to stay in yeshiva and they want him to have a degree. You also have to consider the practicalities here. Is he going to have the menuchas and nefesh to sit and learn or is he going to be involved in this endless war with his parents? You know, it may be a simple thing for him to do an online degree to, to satisfy his parents and, and continue learning in, in a much, you know, in a much more peaceful way. So the practicalities have to be weighed out. You're right. talking about pure halacha. The halacha is he doesn't have to listen to them. But in, in terms of the practicalities, you know, you really, ha- you, we can't go on radio here and tell the world, just don't listen to your parents when it comes to these things and expect them to be successful. Sometimes it works, often it doesn't. Uh-huh. So, so we're bifurcating between the strict halacha and, and the reality. So okay, let me ask a few more scenarios. Child doesn't want to go home for yantif, feels he'll have a better yantif if he stays, stays in yeshiva or go to friends and the parents want him home for yantif. Let's just assume no cautious concerns yet. We'll talk about cautious in a little bit. How would we come out on something like that? Yeah, I mean, uh, something like that where, where it's, it's a yontif. This is going to make a difference to his life. If he thinks that this yontif is going to make the difference, then, then we would say that's called Michel Bain. If it's just more comfortable for him, I, I, you know, Michel Bain means exerting yourself. That also means uh, putting yourself out. 
Right. I, I would not automatically, we don't discourage kids from going out. You mentioned kashras. You know, you mentioned kashras. We've had kids go home and tell the parents, I'll be here for the Seder if you let me kasha the kitchen. We, we, had, we had one particular, one, one, one parent that uh, said at the end of it, this was, it was the greatest experience of my life, but never again. <laughs> <laughs> they completely, you know, they kosher the kitchen the way we kosher kitchens for Pesach. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so how, how do we deal with the hechsheri mitzvah? If we have we have a, a bal tshuva, or it could be somebody who is who's uh, going home has be, become uh, more observant, and the parents don't have those kosher standards. How, how do we deal with those issues? And they don't want to, they don't want to upgrade. Don't eat. I. Uh, um... I don't have to take responsibility for this one. I can blame it on Shlomo Zaman Arbach. Um, I remember the first, the first case where, I mean, I, it, was, it, it was so enlightening. Um, we had, a, uh, we had uh, actually a Kolon member in Aish who married into an Israeli traditional family. Uh, their kashras was minimal. They kept, you know, everything had some kind of kosher certification. Um, and uh, Shemitah was coming. And uh, obviously, you know, they were they were keeping the heter mechira shmita, uh, which serious people, you know, serious people, serious yeshiva people don't keep. In in particular, that was the year of Oslo. Now, the Oslo Accords, which gave the Palestinian Authority um, parts of Eretz Yisrael, uh, was a shmita year. Some smart aleck challenged the prime minister to court. Uh, to the Supreme Court, and he said, this is Shemitah, you've sold the land to some Arab, you have no jurisdiction over it anymore, it is not for you to give Arafat anything. The Supreme Court ruled that the Heter Mechira of Shemitah was a religious ceremony and was not legally binding. Revel Yashiv, that, that was the Supreme Court. That, that backfired. So Revel Yashiv, after hearing about this, said, there is nothing to rely on. There is absolutely nothing to rely on. What happened was that the more serious people in, in the Heter Mechira, in the Heter Mechira camp, did private sales. They didn't, they didn't rely on, on the, the general Rabbanut Heter Mechira. They did a Heter Mechira Miyuchad, which was private sales. Um, because, I mean, they saw the Supreme Court didn't take it seriously. By the way, Rabbi Yashiv at that point made them include a clause in the Mechira's Chametz Star and in the Heter Iskas, where you had to write, this is not a religious ceremony. This is legally binding. <laughs> because of that Supreme Court ruling. Anyway, getting back here, that was the year. So we took him to Shlomo Zaman Arbach. We asked him, you know, what's he supposed to do? You know, eat Heter Mechira, especially now? Eat Heter Mechira? Or, or should he say he can't eat there? They're not willing to, to move up to his standards. Shlomo Zalman said, and these were his words, he said, Shemitah bismanazeh is a Dorabonim. Shalom bias, getting along with your in-laws, involves many Dorabonim. If there's anything to rely on, you rely on it. Let him eat heter mechir. So uh, the way I got, I mean, I got it from there, and it was, he was very, very, he was very, he was adamant, and he was very strong about this. And since then, I've been telling Talmidim, it's very nice to keep homeless. Unless what you're, unless what you're being served is absolutely treif, it is more important to keep the peace. That doesn't mean you go to every simcha of every distant relative, but anyone that is going to be hurt if you don't eat, and lots of people, especially in Israel, and the truth is, it's anywhere. People who, who, who believe that they keep kosher and you refuse to eat there, it is so hurtful to them when you don't, when you don't eat at their home. If that's going to cause ill feelings and machlokis, forget the chumras. We can go down to Iker Adin and Gedolia Aposkim were matter some of the wildest things. So there you really have to know your halacha. You have to know what is chumra and what's Iker Adin. Right, that's a, that's a very powerful psaq, right, Rav Shlomo Zarman Arbach. Wow. Okay, if we, if we could 
Let's change uh, gears and talk about when a child is less from than the parents, because this does happen. It doesn't happen to Bali Chuva, but it does happen maybe if we're talking more Haredi Yeshivish. And it, it could really, ex- it could be a spectrum of things. It could be the child's lifestyle. The parents are not happy with that, not happy with the commitment that the child has not waking up for a minion, if it's a yeshiva bacher, if it's uh, not making minion, not learning, driving a fancy car when he gets a little older, is getting a reputation from others, which embarrasses the parents. And and obviously the parents want an upgrade on the child. So we're talking the reverse now. We're talking the reverse tension and friction between parent and children, because the child, I guess, has gone more to the left than the right at this point. How does that typically play out? Because we're talking about kibudah va'em, and we're talking about a child, the desire of the parents to upgrade. Would Kiburavim kick in then, or would we still say Michel Av Michel Ben? So I'm not sure who's asking this Shaila. You know, ki- kids in the in these situations, the, par- the parent is. <laughs> if the parent is a- is asking the Shaila, I would give them the, the 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 same spiel that I did just before. Your child is trying to make the best of his life. It is not for you to define whom your child is. Chinuch is when your kids are very young. You have to instill in them all the right values. That you're fighting with a teenager or a teenager plus. Listen, face it. He didn't buy into your values, whether he totally rejected them or not at the, not to the extent, not the intensity. Face it. That's where he's at. It is your obligation as a parent to continue to be there for him and demanding that out of kibbut ava aim, um, he just surrenders to your, to your style of living is unreasonable and is only going to backfire. Chazal say, If somebody, if somebody hits an older child, he should be put in cherem. He's over on lifneiver losit in mirshol because he's driving his child into beating him. I would say the same thing goes for anybody that is trying to force a kid into doing things that he's really not holding by. I mean, face it, not every kid is going to turn out exactly the way you would have dreamt him to turn out. Uh, I'm not even sure if it's fair to expect such a thing from your children. Your children are your children. They're not you. You want them to be the best people they can. For you to go force them is just driving them away. You're going to tell me that in the olden days, you know, every one of us got hit and we're okay. It's not like that anymore. It's not like that anymore. I don't know, a Rebbe with a stick, which was the norm when I was in elementary school, Today, that's abuse. And if a kid gets hit in school, you know, he finds that a license to, you know, become a kid at risk. They resent it. They get angry. I don't know. The world has changed. You can explain it any way you want to, but this is the, this is the reality of it. You can't, you're not going to get a child to grow by forcing him to. He's only going to run in the other direction. There's nothing more powerful than an un, the, the unconditional love of a parent. If you, if you, if you don't ruin your relationship with your kids, there's a very good chance that they're going to end up closer to you than you thought. If you ruin the relationship, who knows if they'll ever be interested in having, having anything to do with you or your lifestyle. Okay. So l- let's have the child coming and asking the question now. So my answer would be, listen, if you can do it, not begrudgingly, if you can do it out of respect for your parent and feel good about it, wonderful. If you're going to end up resenting it and become a worse person because of that, you're going to end up hating your parents or hating Torah or hating Hashem Khalila, then, uh, then I would say, just be who you are. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he's asking the question. You know, I, I, I also want to, I, I want to add another thing. It's still going on. It's still going. You still have these diehard parents who are balishita, and if the kid subscribes to a different form of ultra orthodoxy, they're they are devastated. 
the chassid that becomes a misnagid, the misnagid that becomes a chassid. There are still parents, there are still parents that just kill themselves because the kids didn't turn out to be what they wanted them to be. Rabban Hashem, your, your kid's a good kid. <laughs> He's got a different personality, a different shorish and neshama. Come on, be happy. <laughs> Support him, be there for him. What are you doing this to yourself for? <laughs> Very important. Very important. I, I didn't even want to. I didn't even think of asking that question. But uh, it's a very relevant question. It's a very relevant question. Let's get back to the Marik and the Rama on marriage. And parents see that the son or daughter is dating potential spouses, girls or boys. That uh, that's not their derech. They're more modern. They see the girl is not going to dress properly. It's going to dress too properly. Whatever it may be. Are there any situations that a parent indeed halachically can say we're not interested in this and the parent would have the child would have to adhere to the request or is it a carte blanche Rama says this is the child's life it's not the parent's life and the child has a right to decide who he or she is going to marry there's a, there's a mitziv who writes that if the shidduch will embarrass the parents then a child doesn't have the right to do that he says that, that if it's a shidduch we are we are you are be or dying you you are actively causing embarrassment to your parents then you shouldn't do that that, that would include, even though even though generally we say michel ben but he said this would be a case of moraav of, of actually causing them embarrassment and 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 it would be also others disagree and they say no shidduchim are always considered michel ben forget about it altogether you know you don't generally have an issue of mora michel ben that but that's that's the sheet of the nitziv that's interesting. Is that a subjective standard or an objective standard? It's, it's, it's of course subjective. It's of course subjective. But I also think that parents have to consider, you know, I'll tell there are a lot of things that parents subject their kids to because of their social status, because of their, their, their fear of embarrassment. You got a kid who's wavering. Everyone says what that kid needs more than anything else is lots of love and support. A kid that's wavering is struggling. He's struggling himself. And the parental support I'm not talking about financial support, parental support, meaning being there for him, even though it's not exactly what you would have liked, is so important to, to his future, his emotional health, for his ability to resolve his own situation. It's so important, but there are so, so many parents that are reluctant to do that because of embarrassment. They're afraid that people are going to think less of them if they are accepting of a, a, of a child that is behaving in a way that's unacceptable in the community. I, I don't know how... People could be more concerned with their image than with their children. I just can't fathom this. I just don't understand. How sick can somebody be already? Your social status is more important than your children. I mean, I don't know what it takes to knock some sense into these people's heads. You throw a kid out of the house because it's embarrassing to keep him in the house because he got the new look. You know, you, you can't do that. This is your kid. You love your kids unconditionally, I would hope. Your status, first of all, people really look down at you. They think it's your fault. Come on. If you throw them out of the house, maybe they will think it's your fault. <laughs> but it's, it, that's number And number two, even if it did, say it does reflect badly on you. So what? What won't we suffer for the sake of our kids? Is there anything more important to us than our children? So you got to be ready to talk. You know, it's a, the shit is an embarrassment. Listen, this is where your kid is at. Face it. Whom are you kidding? Whom are you kidding? So you should marry. So what do you want him to marry? A girl that puts on an act? A girl that, you know, that really is also not really from, but she, she's willing to act from so it's less embarrassing to you? Is that what you want? 
Right. Is that what you want? I, I, you know, aren't you better off with, with, aren't you better off with a kid that's honest? Aren't you better off with a, with a, with a, a daughter-in-law who's honest? Which will make a much happier marriage. Uh, yes. <laughs> Obviously. And, and I don't, and I don't know how long it lasts for people to live with, you know, this hypocritical life of playing this game. How long does it last? Right. So one last question, Rabbi Berkowitz. We talked before when talking about when the children are more observant than the parents. We had the Psaka of Shlomo Zomar Narbach about kashras, that we can lower it to the base halacha, what's kosher, what's not kosher. And, and uh, as long as there's a shita that says it's kosher, eat. What if we flip it around? And now we're talking about parents that are invited to a child's house and the child is less observant. So we don't have that variable of M here at this point. And uh, the question is, parents would still offend the parent, the child, uh, the son with the daughter-in-law or the daughter with the, the son-in-law, and they're invited out for Shabbos meal and uh, they have concerns. And it could be that there is a non-Jewish uh, employee that uh, cleans the kitchen and does some of the cooking. And there's concerns about bishalakum or certainly the kashras the of the ingredients is, is uh, not up to standard, not up to par of the parents. So how should parents handle that situation? Yeah, with parents, first of all, the issue of shalom still exists. Um, alienating a, uh, a child or, or a son-in-law or daughter-in-law, especially a daughter-in-law in this case, uh, is, is, uh, is not good. If the kid understands, fine. If the kid doesn't understand, don't go blow the relationship over it. Yes, it involves, there is an union of shalom with your, with your own children too. Your chumras, not at the expense of your relationship with your kids. So many, you know, there's so many parents that made this mistake. There's so many parents that made the mistake and they feel that they're holy. And I'm sorry, it's mistaken. It's mistaken. The, oblig- the obligation, the, 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 the uh, I don't know what you call it, but uh, such an important part of being a parent is to be there for your children and, and, and to blow that relationship because you like to keep homeless. It's just not right. This is true when your kids are living at home also. You know, correcting them every five minutes and, and then, and, and then not eating the food because, because, uh, the, the kid did something in the kitchen that's questionable. No, please. Relax. Relax. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, if you're successful in getting across to your kids your values and they grow up appreciating them, that's one thing. It didn't work. Face it. This is where your kid is up to. That does not mean that that's the end of the relationship. Hashem gives you a kid as a pikodin. You're responsible for his physical well-being, his emotional well-being, and his spiritual well-being. And blowing the relationship will definitely will definitely affect him emotionally, and will probably affect him even more spiritually. Rabbi Berkowitz, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Definitely learned a lot uh, during this discussion, and uh, I think there's a lot to think about. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Joining us now is Rabbi Moshe Elephant. Rabbi Elephant is the chief operating officer of OU Kosher, a very popular Dafyomi Magidshir with thousands upon thousands of daily listeners, a Rav, a Posek, and wears so many hats. Rabbi Elephant, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Rabbi Wasserman, you probably wear more hats than I do, but thank you for having me on your program. So Rabbi Elephant, let me ask you, a, a critical topic today, absolutely critical, religious friction between parents and children. It could be parents and children or children and parents. It goes up and down. And we want to focus on the kashrus issues under that umbrella. We have kibbutz when it's uh, a concern of the of the children eating at the parents. We have shalom bias, the reverse. When it comes to eating out, 
eating at parents who may have laxer standards or parents eating at children who may have laxer standards. What's a deal killer? What prevents one from going to the other? And I actually have a, a list of things I want to go through. And I want to first start with the first thing, something very close to your heart, I'm sure. I know the rule. We're not going to name any organizations, kashrut organizations, unless I can slip it in. But uh, if we have you could, you could always mention that the OU is the best hashbuck in the world. I meant, I meant negative. Of course, the oh, OU negative. is the best. There's no question. We're, 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 we're not going to give we're not going to give examples of organizations to not eat by. But but if you have, for example, the children who are more lax, so the parents. Let's start with the parents who are more lax and eat at cautious organizations that we would consider third tier. Is that a bar for the children, for example, to eat at the parents? So I, I have really two general points to make to the question. And then we could obviously, as we continue our conversation, speak about the details. The two points I'd like to make is number one, the chiv of kibar avein is a chiv deraisa. When we speak about kashras, again, there are there are different halakas in kashras. Obviously, some of the issues of kashras are certainly deraisas. Meat that's in the veil or a trefa is a serious issue deraisa. Vegetables, that weren't checked properly and have infestation issue is a serious derice issue. Most of the other issues that we're going to be speaking about are not derices. They're the rabbonons. If a bishlakim, which is a critical element to any kashrus conversation, is a derabonon. Certainly, um, chumris are that people have, and I'm encouraging people to have chumris in the area of kashrus, but we have to keep them in perspective. Some of them may just be menhagim. Chal of Yisrael, without getting into the conversation, you know, is, what, what is the rule of Chal of Yisrael, Bismanazeh, Ramoshes, Atayrim, etc. But even if we'll take the strictest approach to Chal of Yisrael, it's no more than a Durabonim. Kibra of Aim is a Duraisa. I think that is a very important perspective because at the end of the day, and I say this to the people who I work with all the time when we have different issues that come up with the companies that we certify, I say the first and they asked me, what should we do? So I said, the first thing we always have to do is decide or figure out what is the halacha. That, that, that's why we're Rabbonim, and that's why Rabbonim are supposed to pass in these kinds of shilas. First, we have to get the halachic perspective, and then we can take a step further. The second issue, which I know the focus of your program is the parent-children focus, but I don't know if that should be the entire focus in this element. And what I mean to say is, it's the obligation to ask. That means if you come to someone's home and the person is a religious Jew, Talach is says that if he tells you everything in my home is kosher, you could trust him. If you have reason not to trust him, then you have a shayla. If you have a chumrah that you have reason to believe that host of yours whether it's a parent or someone else, is not keeping, it's not their obligation to tell you that they don't have that chumrah. It's your obligation to check if that if they keep that chumrah. And then, as I said a moment ago, after you've decided if it is or isn't the chumrah that you have to be matched on, then you have to decide what to do. But the halach is clear. If the person is a religious person, if you want to, if the obligation to, dis, to, to determine what is going on here is on the guest, not on the host. Um, I just said a shir the other day about Lifna Evil Asita Michal, and somebody asked me if someone comes to my home 
and I eat from certain hechsherim, like you mentioned in your introductory comments, that he may not eat from, that he maybe doesn't eat from those hechsherim. Am I, the host, obligated to tell him so? And if I don't tell him so, am I violating Lefneiver? And I said, no, you're not violating Lefneiver. You didn't say something which is not true. You didn't mislead him. And if he wants to follow that chumrah, which he has every right to do so, it's his job to check. It's not your job to tell him. Now, w- would we say subpar cautious organizations is a chumrah or mi'ikar adin? So that, 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 that is a very powerful question. And the answer to that question really depends on how subpar they are. There's some hashgachis that are not that strict, but they're mi'ikar adin from the letter of the law, kosher. And then there's some hashgachis that you can't trust at all. And frankly, it becomes the obligation of the consumer to check what is the status of that hashgacha. As you said, and we both agree, we're not going to talk about other hashgachas, but I, I find it always very fascinating when I have these conversations. What I find most fascinating is people who need to go to a doctor do all sorts of research, and they're doing the right thing, don't, don't get me wrong, till they determine who's the right doctor they should see. But Machal Sasuris, also, the Gemara says, they make us spiritually unhealthy. So it's obligation on the consumer to determine what is the standard of kashrus of that ashgacha and eat or not eat accordingly. Right. So on, on a practical basis, asking somebody who invites you out for Shabbos lunch, uh, you'd have to ask, what are the hashgachas you hold by? And uh, maybe that's doable. Maybe it's uh, too much of a friction point. So again, but so again, asking a know, parent. If, a person, if, you know, if you know it's a person that you are comfortable with, it's not a problem. To, that you don't have to ask. I know I know. if you invited me for a meal, I would go and want to ask, because I know you're a Ben Tyra, and I know that you're asking a home where I can eat it. If I'm going to a home where it's not that way, then I have the obligation to ask. It really, it's, it's much more fundamental, and I know it's not the subject of our program today. It's first the obligation of every consumer to become familiar with the hashgachas that he's comfortable with and the hashgachas that he's not comfortable with. Right. First, know where you stand, and, and, and then you can inquire afterwards. So what, you, what you're saying is there's, there's a ches kashrus, innocent until proven guilty. If you have a chashad about somebody, then you have to inquire. Right. Yeah. I know, as you've said a couple of times, the focus in the program is on parents. So obviously, it's a much more sensitive situation. If you invite me for a meal and I don't come, I can always decline. I'm not obligated to eat in your home, and I don't have to go. And if I I'm concerned about you. I just won't come. You can't necessarily say that about a parent. And I understand that and respect that. And what I would suggest should be the the principle with a parent is, again, to go much more, take the approach to be more lenient than you would normally perhaps be, A. And B, what I would say when we speak about a parent and where there's a real concern that perhaps the parents are not as careful as you are or as you would want to be, perhaps we should make a differentiation. As I said a few moments ago, we should differentiate between the rices and the rabbonans. So if you're concerned about the meat, where they're getting meat or poultry from, as uncomfortable as it is, if that is indeed the case, you, you need to do some sort of investigation. The investigation should be done in the most nicest way possible, but I don't see a way of getting out of doing investigation. If, on the other hand, 
the issue is on a Durabonon, I would take a much more lenient approach. Particularly, I'm sure I haven't heard what the other, your other guests have said. I, I know that there's Chuvis for Amosha and other Paiskim that have all said that in these types of situations, one could take a more lenient approach when it's an issue of Kibar of the aim and you don't have to eat in everybody's home. But it's hard to say that to a parent. So, Rabbi Elephant, let me ask you some specifics and if you could give us some some uh, quick responses on these. Bishalakam, you are concerned that a parent has non-Jewish domestic help, that domestic help helps with the cooking. And there may be, or maybe you know there is a Bishalakam problem. If that's a Durabanan, which is a, it is a Durabanan, if you know there is a Bishalakam problem, can you still go and eat at, at the parents? No, if you, if you know for sure there's a Bishalakam problem, even though it's a Durabanan, it's hard to make on Durabanan just because you want to eat by your parents' home, unless it's really, really a very serious situation where there is no other option. I would not be ask a Shaila. Ask a Shaila then. That's a real Shaila situation. That's a difficult one. Right. Your parents for the Bali Chuva, for example, the parents eat out trave, but they claim they keep a kosher kitchen because they want their child eating at home. Can you rely on that? Ramosha says you can. Okay, next, bugs. You see your daughter-in-law or your mother-in-law checking vegetables they, and doesn't do a very good job. And maybe puts on a little bit of soap, swishes it around and pours it out. Or she relies on her non-Jewish cleaning help to clean the vegetables. Can you eat there? Um, I would say try to find other vegetables. Try to find an excuse that you don't like those vegetables. Right, so, so go, go as long as you can rely on the meat, then you become a, a carnivore when you eat there. Right. Got it. Let's move over to Eretz Yisrael, Shemitah. Shemitah, and you're going over to somebody's house, let's say a parent or a parent to a child, and they rely on the heter mechira, and you only eat either oter basin or nochri. So, you know, it's not my place to pass the Shilas for Israel. Um, Israeli rabbonim should be passing Shilas for Eretz Yisrael. I'm not convinced that under those circumstances, one ha- one should be machmer. If there's no other option, again, um, we of course don't rely on the hetamachira. We don't believe in the hetamachira. But there are paiskim that took somewhat of a lenient approach to the hetamachira. And of course, I would never, ever recommend that somebody should follow the hetamachira in their home or in their own private life. But if it's a question of kibbutz of the aim, and again, these are also, these, these aren't one side all type of questions. It depends on the relationship with the parent. It depends on how offended the parent will be. But if you think it's going to be a situation where the parent will really be offended and it could cause real friction, there may be room to rely on the Etamahir. Right, right. Now let's Again, go. Again, remembering that according to almost all Rishonim, Shemitah Bizman is the Rabbonon. So we start, as I said earlier, with a Rabbonon, coupled with the fact that there are Paiskim not the person that we typically follow, they did rely on the Hetamahira. And we're dealing in a difficult situation, there may be serious room to be made. Right, right. That, that's uh, that, that's uh, the theme. You know, to distinguish between the Raisa Durabanan and Durabanan. If there is on what to rely on, you can rely. If there's nothing to rely on, like we had the Bishwakum, then you can't violate a definitive Isra Durabanan. Correct. Okay, so Chadash and Yashan. I'm the wrong person to ask um, because. Uh, again, there's also going to be a difference between Eretz Yisrael and Chutz Lords. Yeah. Very hard to be lenient. And Chutz Lords, I, I, I don't think it, 
even if you're not in Chadash, and maybe I have a more lenient approach to Chadash. I know there are others that are much more, it's much stricter when they think about Chadash, but we know that the Bach, we know that most Chassidish individuals aren't Makhbar and Chadash. So even if you're an individual that's Makhbar and Chadash, I don't know if that would be a reason, a time and a place to be Makhbar and Chadash. Right. Now, would you say, you would say the I same? Do want to make that, I do want to make a point to that. I still feel comfortable with what I just said. I know I may get pushback on it, but I'm still comfortable with what I said. Having said that I'm comfortable with what I said, I do have to add that there may be an issue of Ataras Nadar to think about. Yes. Yeah. Could that apply with a lot of the questions that we have here? Or a lot of the questions could be, that could be something that you would have to be Mata Nether. But there's no reason not to be Mata Nether. I'll tell you a Shaila, not connected to our discussion tonight, but it's very much a similar type of a Shaila. Somebody in my shoe is having health issues and was put on a very, very strict diet. And for him to keep the Chumrah, the, the meaning, I shouldn't say Chumrah, I should say the meaning of kidneys this year was very, very difficult. And he came over to me and he asked me, what should I do? And my response to him was that it's a minute. And given the circumstances, it's a, he's suffering a real medical situation that requires him to be on the diet that he's on. I said, we'll be Martin Nether. And we took three people and we were Martin Nether for him. Yeah, two minutes, three minutes. Go. If you, if you see yourself in a situation where you're going to be facing this type of situation that you're in a parent home and you're not going to be able to keep all your chumras, just be Martin to them and say, it's the reason. And I think any rub would be Martin to them. Yeah, yeah. We've been focusing primarily on children eating in parents' house where parents have laxer standards. And then we have the Kibbut Avayim, the Deoraisa, and that's obviously something significant. So if we can be lenient in various areas, we're going to be lenient. How about if we have the reverse case that the children have the laxer standards and they're inviting the parents over? Parents have the stricter standards. So there we don't have a kibbutz avayim issue, but we do have more of a shalom bias issue. Would we have the same leniencies, or is that going to be more difficult to be matir? Again, my personal opinion is that obviously I cannot say that the situations are identical because they're clearly not identical. But in my mind, I can't show you a pasuk in the Torah as explicit as there is about kibbutz avayim in the Saras of Dibris, But I can tell you that I strongly believe that shalom bias is a derisa as well. And some bias between parents and children, both directions, in my mind, is a derisa. So if parents are coming to a child's home and they're going to be able to maintain a relationship with that child who maybe isn't the way they are or the way they would want their son or daughter to be, but by them coming, they could create that kind of environment. I, I believe that that's something that we should really try to get going. And again, even if you have chumras that we encourage, maybe this is a situation that you should look away from some of those chumras. Right. That, that makes sense. That makes sense. Now, now the, another question that comes to mind is we, we said that there is a default, a default cheskas kashrus, and that could be for parents, children, unless you have a reason to believe that they aren't keeping kashrus. But what, what if you see somebody that 
he's not so strict about coming to Minyan and lives a, a different type of lifestyle. And you don't know, but your sense is this is a person that's really not strict about adhering to halachic standards, certainly not your standards, but seems to be lax in general. I know, I know these are areas that are non-kashrus and uh, that w- wouldn't necessarily take away the cheskas kashrus in kashrus because they're in different areas. But at, at what point do we say that I, I have concerns and I have to make my inquiries because this person doesn't strike me as someone who is adhering to, to the letter of the law? So my, my opinion in that question is that we can't play ostrich. And if you have reason to believe that this person is not as observant as he should be or she should be, and even though you haven't seen them be that way in cashless-related area, I, I can't see a way to be makal and saying, well, just because I saw he didn't come to Minion doesn't mean that he isn't very machmer and helkas kashrus. Typically, they all travel together. People who are careful in halacha are careful in all areas. People who are unfortunately not careful are not careful. And to take the approach, well, I don't know, you know, you're innocent until proven guilty, which is what a cheskas kashrus means. I think it has to be taken advisement. And just taking the approach, I see he wears a yarmulke. He must be from, he must be good, and I'm going to be able to eat there. Is also... It's somewhat irresponsible. Right. And how would we say it vis-a-vis parents or children? I would take the two statements that I just said, that I've been saying and combine them. I would say, again, you can't just assume that a parent or a child is from because I want them to be, as much as we certainly do want them to be, and ignore the halachic facts. But again, a, a situation of a parent to a child, I would take much more. I would take much more of a lenient approach. And if there's any way that I could figure out to say that probably everything is okay here or be or good enough, I won't necessarily do it with somebody who's not my parent. But I would do it with somebody who's my who's my parent or my child for the reasons that we've discussed in this conversation. Right, right. You know, just coming to mind that sometimes if a parent, you you eat at a parent who may be lax or parents at a child, and oftentimes if it's a child wants to bring along a friend from yeshiva or something like that. So what we're discussing here, it would be a heter for the child, but not necessarily for the friend that that child wants to bring along with him. And And I think your point is extremely important. And I think the child should have that sensitivity that what is mutter for him because of the circumstances, may not be mutter for his friend. And he should understand that before he invites his friend to his home and put his friend in a difficult place. These are things people have to think about. Children have one rule, and strangers or guests have a different rule, and one has to take all these things into consideration. But, of course, as we also know, and I'm sure it's been discussed, I'm sure you've discussed this in your program, there are people who may not, I just read an article about such an individual, People who are really not that religious and don't have our standards, but when it comes to kashras, they want to be able to have their children, as you've been saying throughout this conversation, it goes two ways. They want to be able to have their children come to their home, and they keep a very kosher home, even if they're not so observant as we would like them to be. And, and that's a very important factor that could be used lahalokha. Right. There is no question in my mind that if, if you know for a fact that somebody's home is a really kosher home. You could eat in that home, even if you know that these people are not Mac, but maybe in other areas. Right, right, right. And I guess the bottom line, because there are a lot of complexities here, is when a Shaila comes up, ask a Rav who has expertise in these areas. Right. You should ask the Rav who has expertise. And I think the Rav has to have three qualifications. One is he has to know the halachas. 
particularly the halachas in areas of kashrus, like we've been discussing, what are the rices, what are the rabbonans, what are chumras. A person who is familiar with the different hashgachas that are out there and knows which are really not reliable and which are maybe not reliable. And I think the most important element that the person we're looking to talk to has to have is what's known as the 50 sochanarach, that he has the proper common sense to know how to deal with such a shayla. And, and that third thing is probably the most important. And everything in life. And everything in life. Rabbi Elephant, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. It goes both ways. Joining us now is Rabbi Yitzhak Lobenstein. Rabbi Lobenstein has smicha from Rav Ullman. He learned in the Mir and various other places. He is a prolific speaker, giving 15 shirim, up to 15 shirim a week. He is a well-known speaker for Kesher Navshi, worldwide dealing with the issues we are talking about today. He's the founder of 10 Tikva organization, which guides parents with challenging kids. He's also the author of an upcoming book, The Broken Child, a 500-page treatise relating to our our very topic. It includes in excess of 3,000 relevant Makoras. Rabbi Lobenstein, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, everybody. Great to be on. And uh, let's hope we can make a Kiddush Hashem and help as many people out there as possible. Amen, amen. So you, you live in Kirat Sefer and you also deal worldwide with the Yeshivish Haredish community. And wanted to discuss with you in particular how common the issue is of tension between parents and children, for example, religious differences between them, children being less from, more from than the children's. What have you experienced in your Tibor? Okay, that's a challenging question. And it's a very broad question, which makes it so challenging. Um, you know, obviously, that the on the forefront of the challenges that come to, to us is are those where kids are spiraling off the derech and like totally losing it. And that's a different forte. I don't think it's what we're discussing today. You know, and there we have real issues and then everybody understands this is not, that's not really going to be a chinuch issue or how do we deal with it. That's a crisis and that needs a different type of intervention. When it comes to a regular chinuch related discussion of like the parents and the kids are like not on the same line, it does happen. Um, I would say, I can't say it's happening too much. And especially as you mentioned, we're talking here about the Haredi yeshivish community, like most kids, and this is a rule of thumb, that a kid wants to follow their father, they want to follow their parents. It doesn't matter what the parents are doing. You know, when I get a, a chiloini kid, an, you know, an irreligious child who suddenly wants to become from, then I always say something went wrong. Why don't you want to follow what your father's doing? Now, what might have gone wrong is that he met the right person at the right time. And he was inspired. But what might be going wrong, which happens too often, but that's just Hashem's way of bringing the Shamas back, is they get traumatized out there. And exactly what sends from kids off is what sends irreligious people elsewhere. So some will find Christianity, others will find that, um, Islam, and others are going to find Yiddishkeit. But, you know, but that's where things have gone really wrong. And, and often when there's trauma which causes that, then they spiral totally off track. It's not just little changes. They're just off track. But that's not what we're discussing. Here we're discussing the subtle nuances of differences with Khumras when a father, a parent, or a child either takes a step to the right, takes a step to the left, and then you've got those, those subtle changes. I would say it's that little bit less common, but it does happen. And when it happens, when it's dealt with right, there's almost no problems and no scars. When it's dealt with wrong, then that itself can become a trauma and can send the kid away completely. It makes it much worse. Much, much worse. Yeah. 
Okay, so let, let's start with the specific frictions or issues when some, I like your phrase, somebody steps to the left, steps to the right. It, it sounds like a little bit of a dance and it, indeed it could be a little bit of a dance. And what would you say the specific issues are that may, may come up in, in uh, the Haredi Tzibor? So it, again, talking about healthy people, let's assume we're talking about healthy parents and healthy children. Then the differences, which are a lot to do with the way the world is spiraling Of course, the the exposure, the tremendous gap, emotional gap between, again, it depends a little bit which generation we're talking to, but the the, the tremendous emotional gap between the parents and the kids in the second generation post-Holocaust. I don't know if you've ever done a program on that, but we we lost a generation in the connection got tremendously severed in a very large way. And all those things contributed to today's children being exposed exposure period, just exposure to technology, to billboards, to just all around the peer pressure, which is, you know, once upon a time, peer pressure only had a certain a certain power because where would peer pressure take you? Today, peer pressure, you know, the sky's the limit and the sky's not the limit. You know, today with peer pressure, everything's out there. And so kids are making these subtle changes that might sound very childish and like almost immature. And if we make an issue out of them in the wrong way, we could be creating an issue, but they do exist. And I'll give you a few you know, examples. You've got things, and again, I don't want to offend any of our listeners. So this is not about right and wrong or right and left. This is just about differences and everyone can interpret them their own way. But it'll be silly things like what type of a keeper In England, we call it a couple. What type of a couple you're wearing, whether it's four parts or six parts, whether it's knitted or whether it's black, whether it's got a rim, it doesn't have a rim, and any other amount of relatively seemingly irrelevant details that can spark a volcano in the home if not dealt with and not understood right. We'll discuss that a little bit soon. But, you know, just something as, as silly as that, when a child comes home and the parent realizes, whoa, he's gone to the shop, he's bought himself a kippah, something's not the same. You know, that's something which could be irrelevant. It could be relevant, but that's like one of them. It could be when it comes to Hersherim. We only eat Hersher, let's call it Betat Yerushalayim, or whatever Hersher you feel is the only Hersher that's kosher. And your son comes in now with a different Hersher. And the chances are it's kosher, but it's it's somewhat negating or threatening you as a parent, your value system. And, and, again, you, with- and you view it as a total breakdown of the religiosity of the child. Well, if you view it as a total breakdown, you will probably be causing just that. Okay, we'll get back to that soon as to how we are supposed to perceive it and what we are supposed to do. Because if if your child is making your kitchen trafe, go for help before you throw your kids out with the kitchen. You know, you need guidance, but that's a different topic. But yes, if you say that a, a, a slight deviation in Hersha and you view that as, wow, my child is eating trafe and Tim Tumalev and now what's ever going to come of him, the chances are you're looking at it the wrong way. How to deal with it, we'll get to soon, but Hersherim could be an issue. And mentioning things of the child, so to speak, taking a step to the left, but the same could happen with parents. Uh, you know, so if a parent suddenly gets inspired and decides to step up with the Hersherim, to step down with Hersherim, then a child may have an issue and say, just a minute, we are from people. We only eat Hersher this. Mummy, I caught you with a chewing gum in your bag, which is like a different Hersher. Are you eating treif? And yeah, I can't bring my friends into the house if that's the gum that you're eating. You know, so sometimes a parent would step down from the values or from the, you know, what they were doing before. And that's also an issue. You know, so sometimes we'll discuss that soon, but sometimes parents 
have to deal with the child's change and children have to deal with the parents' change. Rabbi Lobenstein, keep giving us some examples. This is very interesting. Right. So other examples which are very which have come up in the last years, for example, do we carry in the Eruv? Do we not carry in the Eruv? You know, there I don't need to explain to all of us what that means, but some people think if you carry in the Eruv, you're Michal Shabbos Befarhesya. Others will tell you, what do you mean? It's kosher. Others will say it's just a Khumrah. More on that soon. But you know, carrying in the Eruv could be a huge issue. You know, the father carries, the mother carries, or doesn't carry. The child decided if my Rosh Hashiva can carry, why can't I carry? If the Rav of the Eruv can carry, then why are you not carrying? That can be a, a point of contention. There's another example would be something like wearing tcheles on your tzitzis. Some people will say it's the only way to, to be in the mitzvah of tzitzis. And others will say you're crazy. You don't even know what tcheles looks like and certainly don't know what fish it comes from. And you don't know if it's a fish or if it's a shell, etc. So that's something where if a child comes in with tcheles, how are you going to deal with it? What are people going to say about my child who suddenly went to Chelas? Are they going to think we're crazy? They're going to think we're tzaddikim. What you know? How we're we dealing with that? That would be another example. Another example that could cause tremendous friction and is really not such a big issue, and that's keeping Rabbeinu Tam. What you're making have dollar and lighting the Shabbos candle before Rabbeinu Tam. You know, and so the one either the father or the child might say, "Well, we don't pass connect Rabbeinu Tam," and the other, the, the father might say, "What do you mean? It's brought down in the Mishnah Berurah and the Shulchan Aruch in one place, in, in some places." So that would be an example of like, say, so if everybody's following either Rabbeinu Tam or not Rabbeinu Tam, that's fine. But when there's suddenly a change, that could become an issue. Another example would be, for example, and again, just I'm throwing it out there. Do you shave? Don't you shave? Do you trim? Don't you trim? What's with when it comes to the to, to the women, to the girls? So there's a snoshim. What happens with sneers? You know, is it mid-length? Do the skirts have to be right down to the floor? Is it enough if it just about co- covers the knee when you're standing? You know, there's, without going into halachic issues, there can be changes. There could be halachic changes, but there could also be changes in, in, in the tarbut, in the culture. Could, we'll get to that soon. But, you know, th- there are changes in tzniyas that could really derail a family when, a, when either the mother or the daughter changes and moves right or left. It can be a shock to the system and needs to be dealt with. Yeah, these examples are very interesting because some of them we can look at as specific areas in the Lach or specific Khumras, like Rabbeinu Tam. That's a specific Lach. Are you going to be Machmir? Are you not going to be Machmir? Erevin, am I going to be Machmir? Or am I not going to be Machmir? But certain ones of these are, are specific Lachas that represent or could represent big issues. And, and I guess that's why we have the tension. The keeper that you wear can be something small or can be something that represents your leaving uh, whatever stream of religion that you're part of, or techeles, you're, you're becoming something else, or the hashkachas that you eat, you're not part of us anymore. It's niyas, you're dressing differently like them. So I guess that's why those examples are, are small, but could be viewed as very significant. Correct. Correct. Maybe this would be a point, this will be the point, the time to, to, to bring out something which I haven't heard people speaking about, but I've seen many, many par- parents getting confused about. And again, I don't want to elaborate on this a lot now, but just I want to put it out there. There are three concepts that get very, very confused, even though they have almost nothing in common. And that's the concept of, I'll say in English, right? It's being a Jew, following Judaism, and following the Jewish culture, right? Being a Yid, Yiddishkeit and, and, and living a Yiddish lifestyle. These three things are like, they sound very similar. They obviously are related, but they are worlds apart. And if we can't differentiate and put things in the right bracket, we're going to cause some big korbanus. For example, being a Yid, right? There was a notice up in the shul. We sell our chomets to a real goy. 
not to somebody who's got an iPhone. You know, so there, that's, that's, that was somebody who, like, it was obviously a joke, either a joke or a hack. But, you know, there was somebody who was, like, saying, oh, if you have an iPhone, and again, I'm not talking about iPhones now. I'm just saying, if you, there are people out there who think, if you have an iPhone, well, then what's the difference between you and a guy? And then, oh, Mechiras Chomets, yeah, we sell it to a real guy, not just to this type of guy. And it's obviously a joke. It's a sad one. But... It's it's a what's that teaching us? Do we know who, who a yid is? You know, how are we defining a yid by what we do? In my book, Tinek Shanishbra, the broken child is a huge chapter on that. What defines you as a yid? And the answer is the fact that you're a yid. Nothing else. It doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter what culture you belong to, nothing can determine how much of a yid you are. So it's hundred percent or zero percent. Absolutely. That's right. There's no halfway thing. In this context, there's no halfway Eden. Now, there's, there's, there's uh, something called Yiddishkeit. Yiddishkeit is very straightforward. I mean, it's, it's challenging, it's complicated, but the definition of Yiddishkeit means Dalet You keep what the Gemara says, You're keeping the Torah. If you keep half the Torah, then you're keeping half of Yiddishkeit. It doesn't make you half a Yid, but it means you're keeping half of Yiddishkeit. Yes, so Yiddishkeit is dependent on and is determined by how much you're conforming with the rules, conforming with, yeah, with Yiddishkeit, with what it says in the Torah. Now, then you've got the Jewish culture. Now, culture is very complicated because there are many, many cultures within Yiddishkeit, whether it's Hasidish and Litvish, whether it's Ashkenazish or Sfardish, whether, and within every bracket, there's so, it's such a broad spectrum. And within each bracket, it's like there's so many details there. And it's just a culture, right? If I'm wearing a white shirt or a colored shirt, that's nothing to do with whether you're, how much of a Yid you are and nothing even to do with how, how Yiddish you are, how religious you are. But it's very much got to do with, a, with part of the culture. Now, there's things called Chumras. There's things called Minhogim. And those are very, very complicated to determine. Are they in the bracket of culture, in families, cultures, and communities? Is it a culture or is it Halacha? That's something we can't go into now. It's a complicated discussion. Which minhogim become halacha? Which chumras become halacha either because the family's taken them on, because Klal Yisrael took them on, or because you took them on, they now became halacha. Can you change? Okay, those halachic discussions, which is, we're not going to dis- be discussing here now. But, you know, there's, there's the culture. Now, when somebody deviates from the culture, that doesn't mean, oh, it's all okay. No, because th- where, what is that pointing at? When somebody changes from the culture, it's like you are stopping to associate. Culture is just an association. A certain culture, if I wear this type of dress code or I live in this place or I do, I, I, I talk, I, I act in certain ways, it means I'm associated to certain people. If I suddenly change that, it means I'm disassociating. So something, for example, a Haredi culture, and I don't want to dis- define that because I think so many people listening to this are going to define it differently. But you know, if you had, if you were following a Haredi culture, and now you decided to follow a culture which is less Haredi, then nothing's happened to your Yiddishkeit just yet. But your disassociation to Haredism or to Haredim, I don't like the Haredism word, but to Haredim, that might mean that three steps down the road, you're going to be, you're going to be compromising on on the Yiddishkeit. And you'll excuse me for saying that, a generation or two down the road, you might be compromising on the Yiddish part, on the Yid part. It, because it goes, it's like, so the fact that you changed your couple, is that in Hashem, is there a place in Ganeden for different couples? No. But if you change that couple, what's going to happen in a week, in a year, in a generation, in two? So we do have reason to be concerned 
but we may we're not allowed to focus on the cultural change. We have to focus on what the cultural change means to us or means to the person changing it. The implications, implications, and consequences. That's absolutely right. right. Very good. So why don't we get back to the important issue of handling the situation? And we can start with either the child or the parent. And maybe we'll start with the child. The child uh, has differences with the parent. And uh, oftentimes, I would assume these things are not discussed and frictions grow and tensions grow. If a child wants to take a different direction for the parents in specific areas, or if we divide it up, we're not going to talk about level number one being a yid because the kid's a yid. But uh, on the Yiddishkeit level or the culture lifestyle level, how should a child handle that? Should she go to the parents and say, I, I'm taking a different direction? I assume it starts slow, in fact. So uh, how, how does a child handle such a situation? Right, so that's really a, a double-sided question. You're talking about the child making a change, and there's two people or, who, or two, two bodies here that have to make an adjustment. There's the child, and then there's the parent. How does the parent deal with the child's change? Generally speaking, you know, just a rule of thumb, the one that's making the change is not normally the one who's asking the question. It's often not coming from such a healthy place. It's either coming from an unhealthy place. Maybe we'll discuss that a bit more about Humras a little bit later if we have time. It's either coming from an unhealthy place or it's coming from a place of being absolutely convinced that this is the only way to serve Hashem or, or something in that, you know, in that nature. And they're not the ones asking the question. I've yet to find a child who says, my father doesn't shave. I want to shave. What should I do? It does happen. And when it happens, Baruch Hashem, but when the child asks the question, it normally means that the child-parent relationship is good or good enough. It normally means the child will do it in the right way and there will not be an issue. Unless the parent is totally like crazy and mushuga. And in that event, if the child's asking and the parent is that extreme, then the Das Torah, which I hope the child is asking, is somebody who understands the generation, understands the nefoshois hapoyalois, understands who the child is, who the parents are, will be able to realize, just a minute, keeping stability with a father who is maybe not that stable is more important than shaving or not shaving and tell the child it's not worth rocking the boat. So if the child is asking, normally the answer he'll get will keep things okay. So typically what you're saying is if the child is changing, the parent is going to be asking the question. Correct. And if the parent changes, it's going to be the child is going to go to his mashkiach or to his rov and say, my father suddenly stopped shaving or suddenly started growing long, long pears. Um, I can't, you know, I'm embarrassed because he's the only one in town with long pears. What should I do? Should I cut them off when he's sleeping or should I leave the house? Or, you know, and then, and, you know, we can discuss that, but it's often not the one who's actually making the change. Now, just, just because you asked the question, if a child asks, I want to change, what should I do? Then the answer, I don't know who he's asking the question to, but if he's asking, he should ask a Rav who, who understands dynamics of relationships and knows the halachas. And who can a little bit get into the kishkas of the child of like, why? And this brings me to a very important point, which maybe I should have mentioned before. But I heard this in the name of Ramosha Soloveitchik, and it's a game changer. And that is, we often think about the what. What's he doing? It's much less important than why. As the famous Teferis Yisrael in Chaymer Bakoidish in Kochim, who says, always ask seven questions. Me, ma, eich, kama, lama. He's got there seven questions that you should always be asking, and it's worth seeing it there. I've, I haven't got them on the tip of my tongue now, all of them. The last one is lama, why? If you understand why, you have the answers to most questions. And the question that's left is a shyless chacham. It's an intelligent question, which in itself is chetzi tshuva, 
is half an answer. So if a child wants to change in whatever it's going to be, the big question is why? Ask the child. And a good nusach will be, but be careful how you use this. You know, let's say that he used to shave and now he doesn't shave and now he wants to stop shaving. Just as an example, ask the child, you know, an image of you shaving, what does shaving mean about you? Not what does it mean to you? What does it mean about you? And he's going to start saying, oh, what do you mean? Just repeat the question. Be collected to settle. What does it mean about you? And he's going to tell you, if I shave, continue shaving, it means I'm going to lose my friends. It means I'm going to go to Gehenna because I once saw somebody quote a Zoyar. Or he might say anything like that. When he tells you what it means about him, then, then this Rav, if he's somebody who understands in people in the Nefesh, it, it, he'll be able to deal with it. And very quickly, it will not be a shaving question. It will be a, an existential question that can be helped. Now, if the child, for good reasons, wants to change Anhaga, the Rav should determine, is it a Yiddishkeit thing? Because it could be that he's getting stronger. His father may have been Chayzer B'Tshuva three weeks ago, and the child wants to do this even quicker, and, you know, because he's got all inspired, and he wants to be from much quicker. The Rav has to tell him. And there are halachas, we might discuss them soon, but there's halachas in Kibbutav Aim where a Rav would know. What is a child required to do for Kibbutav? And then there's using seichel, it's what we call the fifth chelik in Shulchan Aruch. That use your brains. That, you know, you're going to, let's say that halachically he's allowed to make the change, but you know you're going to cause a fireworks in the house and you're going to make, turn the home into goigumogig, which is actually a term the Gomorrah uses when there's challenges in the home. Then why would you want to do that? We once had an issue with a bacha who wanted to stay in yeshiva. And his father didn't want to go, didn't want him to be in yeshiva, wanted him to go to university, wanted him to study, to stay from, but you know, that's what it was that type of what we call a very English type of family, a very proper type of family. I hope I'm not misleading anyone with these terms. And very good people, from people. But you said you've been, you've done the yeshiva year, now go to university. And I remember we went at the time to ask Das Taira, and the Rav at the time said something amazing. He says, let's say that you're allowed to stay in yeshiva, and the halacha is you can't stay in yeshiva. It's explicit in Shulchan Aruch, in Simon Reish Nemen Yeradeh. But are you, is your head going to be 50% of the time focused on the fact that you're letting your father down and 50% dealing with what you have to deal with, then what have we gained? Being in, your, in university with your head in yeshiva is probably better than being in yeshiva than having a, and having your head in university. Now, that's not, I don't want anyone to mislead that. No, we don't, for those who are not headed to university, don't go to university. And if your head is in, in elsewhere, whilst you're in yeshiva, go and discuss it with the right people. This wasn't a... So, so very often, it's, you know, you've got to take the whole picture into account and say, what's it going to cost on the child? To, you know, to, to do what he's allowed to do at the expense of tremendous dis-ease and, and friction, it's not always worth it. But then you have to see how hot the child is on changing. You know, so you've got to use your seichel. But do focus on the why more than on the what. You'll get much further. Right. Very good. So if we have some principles uh, for the person who didn't make the change, how to handle the person who's making the change. We'll just for ease, talk about the parent, the child made changes, principle, two principles, three principles, how they should handle things. Okay, so now we've reversed it from, you know, from like, talking to the child. Now we've got a parent, we've got a parent who, who wants to deal with, who wants, who's got to deal with, I've got a child, he's not off the derech, but something is changing here, how do I deal with it? The big question two questions, which is the same question. Why is he changed? And why is it so important to you that he's changed or that he doesn't change? Let's forget now whether he's eating these achshayrim or those achshayrim. What's it, what's it doing to you? If your child was wearing tcheles, what does it mean? The same question as before. What does it mean about you that your child is wearing tcheles? 
Do you think he's a guy? Do you think he's either on Baltoisif? You know, because like he's adding a mitzvah because you're so sure this is not Trelis? Or do you think that he's just crazy because only crazy people do that? And I'm not Khalil suggesting that only crazy people are Trelis, but you know, if the father thinks the child is crazy, what does having a crazy child mean to you? Ask the good the existential questions of like, why is he changing? Now I'll I've had kids who say, you know, I'm changing because I'm gonna do everything in life not like my father. And he might say to me, You really don't want to know why. That's the so, hachit. Well, it's, it's, I don't know if it's the hachit against for the hachit. A reason. Maybe for a reason, but... That's right. uh, Maybe because that, his father's really been the tough guy, that, you know, he's really done things wrong, and the child says, your type of Yiddishkeit is not my type of Yiddishkeit. So sometimes, chas v'sholem, a child will go off the derech, but sometimes a child will go extremely on the derech. Very often, and I'm only going to mention this in passing, and... Whoever, you know, you'll all take this to where you understand this, but very often a child will feel inadequate in their avoidance Hashem. They'll feel unable to, to control themselves from keeping all the Tariag mitzvahs. Sometimes we have that. There is a concept. Um, because it's a public forum, I don't want to go into small details, but there are concepts of certain things where a person feels, I can't. And this is somewhere where I'm failing and He's feeling very bad in himself. He's feeling horrible. It doesn't matter if he can't stop using his phone on Shabbos or if he can't stop doing other things. I don't want to get into specifics. And this boy subconsciously or girl subconsciously will say, you know, I better really excel in another area. So you'll have these girls who suddenly, you know, strangle themselves, closing their top buttons and putting pins in. And then we think, oh, wow, what's a daker? Sarah Schneer would be so proud of her. And then somebody with a bit of seichel will say, just a minute. What's behind there? Something's going on. So try and understand. Don't zone in. Oh, my child is being different to me. He's embarrassing us. Um, you know, he's going off the derech. He's going, he's making us look off the derech, whatever it might be. No, that's the wrong direction. The child might be suffering. When it comes to chumras, again, this is not a, that's not the, the focus of our topic, but there's a concept of OCD, which most of you know what that means. Obsessive compulsive disorder, where a person is, feels compelled from the inside to, to go over the top, to, ex, to go to extremes. So if you see your child is suddenly learning all night and going to Kailul Chatzais and getting up for nets, then, you know, that might be a challenge, but you don't fight him. Don't categorize him. Try and understand what's going on. And if you as parents are not able to do that, which is often the case, speak to get some guidance of how you can find the right person to understand the why. And that will answer most of the issue. Okay, so let me just recap quickly because uh, we're, we're basically out of time. Focus on not the what. The what is obvious. Right. And you, can, and you usually cannot change the what's without changing the why's. Uh-huh. So go a step deeper or in many steps deeper, understand the why. And hopefully the why will help put things in perspective as well. Correct. Now, just as a closing statement, if there are halachic issues, and there sometimes are, the examples I gave, maybe not, but if it comes, for example, to Echsherim, there could be halachic issues. If you feel that either your parent or your child is, is acting in a way which is challenging you, if, it's, if you feel it's challenging them halachically, then you have a discussion, is there chiyor of teichocha? Do I need to rebuke them? Do I have to confiscate their gadget because it's That's, you know, what do I have to do to change, to change them? But if you feel they are compromising your Yiddishkeit, you must go to a Rav and say, this is my situation. I cannot change them. What can I do? Can I eat in the home? Am I allowed to, you know, what should I do? Speak to a Rav. We have Rabonim and many, many Rabonim today 
understanding the dynamics of the generation and understanding the dynamics of, of people. And to on a slightly, just to close with this, and I hope, you know, it's good I didn't say it earlier so that people shouldn't shut us down before we start, but I do want to point out one thing to all of us and new parents. Your job as mechanchim, your job as in dictating, determining what your child does is called the mitzvah of chinuch, which according to most is a mitzvah de Rabbonon. It started when the child is six or seven years old and finishes approximately when they're bar mitzvah. It could continue till 18 or 22. It's a Gemara and Kedushin. You only have a small window of time. And if you're mothers, it doesn't apply to you. Your job is to support your husbands. But to fathers, you, have, you were given a job of being mechanuch. It's not your identity. Who you are as people, I hate to break it to you, but fathers, look in Rashi. It's in three places at least where Rashi says the word av means friend. It doesn't negate kibud. It doesn't negate yira. It doesn't negate, negate halochas of kibud av. But it means you have to be his friend. Rashi says chavir, the patron, which is somebody who's just a friend, an equal, I shouldn't use the word equal, but a friend, the English word father, the Yiddish word fotter comes from the Hebrew word patron, which is a friend. So make sure that, and that's who you are from when this child was born or before to, and for the rest of your lives. So make sure that who you are doesn't get, don't lose sight of who you are because of a job you were given. Remain his friend. And when it's always, a, when you've got to juggle between, am I going to lose my relationship with my child because of some value? Speak to a competent authority, halachic or other, to make sure you're not making a fundamental mistake of losing your relationship with all its consequences because you were trying to uphold something which is probably not Yiddishkeit. Very good. Well, Rabbi Lobenstein, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, very eye-opening and uh, a lot to think about. A lot to think about. Thank you so much. We should all have Siata Dishmaya further. Amen.